Les questions que mes générations sont, se posent sont les suivantes, si je peux me résumer. C'est de ne pas comprendre comment l'Afrique, avec tant de richesses sur notre sol, avec une nature généreuse, de l'eau, du soleil, en abondance, l'Afrique est aujourd'hui le continent le plus pauvre. L'Afrique est un continent affamé. Et comment se fait-il que les chefs d'État traversent donc le monde à mendier Voici des questions que nous nous posons et que nous n'avons pas de réponse jusque-là. Nous avons l'occasion de tisser de nouvelles relations. Et j'espère que ces relations puissent être les meilleures pour donner un meilleur avenir à nos peuples. Pour ce qui concerne le Burkina Faso, aujourd'hui nous sommes confrontés depuis plus de huit ans à la forme de manifestation la plus barbare, la plus violente du néocolonialisme, de l'impérialisme. L'esclavage qu'on tend encore à nous imposer. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the 22nd episode of the 1804. Today, I have my friend and guest, uh, Travis Ross, joining us today. Um, if you don't know, Travis is in charge of the Canada-Haiti Information Project. Has been doing activism for quite some time now. He'll get into that. Um, Travis has also written mainly for, obviously, Canada-Haiti Info Project, IT Liberté, based in New York, um, the Canada Files, um, the Black Agenda, report as well as rabble.ca travis how are you today very good thanks happy to be here nice to have you so before we start just tell like just give uh my audience like in terms of um how you got into this and how you started getting into necessary activism and specifically the topic of haiti yeah i was trying to uh to nail down dates so don't quote me any of this stuff but um mm -hmm. basically um around 2008 i um got started getting involved with haiti action in montreal mm -hmm. there was a strong like haiti solidarity movement in montreal and um started meeting with them that eventually within about a year year and a half led to a lot of organizing and uh kind of collectively we brought uh Mario joseph from the uh, bai and uh ray adal from subida mm -hmm. up on a speaking tour of, in uh, montreal and ottawa it was like really successful um but after that the kind of so the activism side kind of died down not just for me personally but just generally in canada yeah there were active solidarity groups in, in like many major cities but um after that um a lot of activists either moved on to other topics or got occupied with other things and um there were a handful of solidarity activists kind of continued to follow uh, haiti so my um interest shifted to helping maintain what was the Canada Haiti Action Network website at the time, mm -hmm. along with Roger Annis and Ralph Paul. And um, the by about 2012, 2013, 14, somewhere in that range, Roger Annis took a step back. Sorry, I should say he's one of the two founders of the Canada Haiti Action Network. Okay. But um, in that time, we had made the decision that the name had to change. Um, it was giving the false impression that there was 
an activist network in Canada and hadn't been for years at that point. So it was changed to the Canadian Information Project. Um, And uh, Roger stayed on kind of, you know, advising personal friends kind of thing, talking. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it really was uh, Ralph Ball and I who were um, running the site. And the first priority with the the meager funds we had was to um, open up a French homepage because essentially that's how we work. Ralph updates the French page. I update the English page. Okay, it's uh, largely news gathering. Um, so we have a, you know, generally speaking, the same editorial view chat every, uh, every, you know, six to eight weeks um, for a few hours. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm coming here to you as a, as a writer and a journalist and less so as a, a co-editor for the uh, Canadian information mm-hmm. project. Yeah, nice, nice. So we'll get into it. We'll go into it here. And the first, um, excuse me, thing I want to discuss was from the part two of the article you had written on the Canada Files. I'll pull it up here and just to show the title to people. All right. And for those who haven't read it yet, um, I'll get back to here. But this was a article Travis Ross written on Canada Files. This is part two of the three parts. But what I'm focusing on is the part two, the Canadian imperialism in Haiti, Haiti's controlled opposition and the Global Fragility Act. So part of this, um, in terms of the Global Fragility Act, um, I've already covered in episode um, 2021, uh, although there's not that much uh, information coming out from the states other than that bill and the announcement. This something you can go back and check if you want to look um, you're more interested in the in the Global Fragility Act, and also refer to this article as if I've because I've covered it based on this. So I'll get into I'll read this quote, Travis, and I'll ask you my question. Um, I had something found <clears> or <throat> something interesting I found here, and I'll pull it up to make sure I have everything. Washington is desperate to keep so-called fragile states like Haiti from developing diplomatic relations with China and Russia and potentially joining in investments project like the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative or BRICS. Jovenel Moïse, who was assassinated over two years ago, learned that this lesson the hard way. Mired in corruption and increasingly isolated from Haiti's oligarchs, Moïse established formal diplomatic relations with Moscow only one month before his assassination. Accrediting Russian ambassador Sergei Milik Bagdasarov, it was the first time Haiti had established diplomatic relations with Russia. Russia. Many argued that this was a factor which led Washington to greenlight Moïse's assassination. So... Going back into and so my question is, we're talking about here, um, kind of Washington, uh, kind of real and desperate states and generals. But my and this is something I, I thought about yesterday. Why do you think the U.S. in terms of we know what their intentions are, but why do you think the U.S. hasn't taken um, the Chinese approach to foreign policy, even if it's under the guise of they want to have control or um, or, or um, influence? Why do you think they haven't taken they've taken more of an aggressive rather than, I'd say, a softer approach like China? And what I mean by that, um, China, like most of their work, when they do go into, like, for example, um, the African countries, oftentimes they offer um, infrastructure. And if you go through the history of the United States specifically, um, there's not much, although there's always been funding for some type of infrastructure, building schools, there has been some in the past, but in terms of significant difference, um, there hasn't been any significant project from the Americans. Um, so I was wondering, what you, what do you think about that? Um, that's a big one, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's usually, there's sometimes some window dressing of maybe investing in a hospital or, yeah. or building a school, but, uh, you know, 
speaking more broadly, the U.S. Uh, U.S. schools are are imperialist. So, and uh, uh, a big factor in that is the um, the arms industry, the military-industrial complex. So it doesn't follow the logic of their own foreign policy or imperialistic policy to, let's say, like do what China does and actually try to make friends and have investments that are fair um, uh, and trade and so on. Yeah. Um, I, I don't come from the school of thought that China itself is uh, is imperialist in any way. So, um, yeah, they're two they're two totally different like types of uh, foreign policy. And the United States, even when it has the veneer of being friend of seemingly being friendly or benevolent, you dig a little deeper and you find out that uh, they have their own self interest. Makes sense. Um, yeah, motiv- motivating it. Yeah. No, because I always find what everything is. I, I agree with it. Just I just find it funny if because now it's not a thing. Like most people, like if you're following what's going on in the world, you, you kind of see what what's American stance. But for me, pu- putting myself in their shoes, the government, whoever, um, whoever's leading charge, I'd be like my approach would be like, okay, well, people know we've our history. Like, wouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Maybe take because they through USA they give they pour out billions. So I'm like, to me, I'm like in my head, like shouldn't like. Shouldn't we maybe try, although maybe our intentions are not what China's intentions are, shouldn't we maybe change our approach if we're going to just might as well, if we're going to be throwing this USAID money uh, in all the countries that we necessarily uh, kind of occupy as a neo, neo-colony? I always thought about that. And just to point out, um, just to show the, the audience here, this is show you some projects from the Silicon Belt and Road Initiative. This is from Wikipedia. So. I'm not a big advocate for Wikipedia, but I think for simple things like that, they are pretty accurate. Um, but just to show you in Algeria, China is now developing Algerians El Hamadia Central Port, Algeria's largest and first deep water port and the second deep water port in Africa. China also completed the 750 mile east to west highway that connects Algeria with neighboring Morocco and Tunisia and about a thousand Chinese companies operate in Algeria. Their way eased by uh, Wavier of the 5149 requirement and even in uh in Djibouti in total the export import bank of China has lent approximately 1 billion dollars to Djibouti funding nearly 40% of Djibouti's sub- <clears throat> substantial <coughs> excuse me guys substantial infrastructure and investment projects due to the belt and road initiative Ethiopia and Djibouti are now bridged through Addis Ababa Djibouti railway and Ethiopia Djibouti water pipeline so these are some of the projects that, again, these cost billions either through loans or China doing it, sorry, non-concession loans. So oftentimes China will give out these loans at like 0% or 0.01. So I'm giving money at no interest or they'll go in and do it, um, go in and do it themselves part of the, whatever deal they made with that government. So, no, that's interesting. I just think that if the U.S., um, not to say I don't know if they would succeed, but I think if the U.S. kind of took a different approach, whatever their intentions are, I think they'd be slightly more successful. Because right now, the people that are paying attention knows like the people know how the, what the U.S.'s attitude is. And we people know what um, China's approach is as well to foreign policy. Right. Um, so I think people outside of like the West, maybe like like China is still largely demonized. And yes, you know, Haiti doesn't have a good reputation either yeah um, 
but um, I mean, just look at the country, look at the countries who are willing to sign on to the United States project to like reoccupy or to occupy Haiti physically. Like yeah. they are able to find some countries to sign on, and those countries are generally sp speaking run by authoritarians or dictators and so on. True. So exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's the that's why you and I will never get a job at the State Department or the NED. You know, yeah. we, don't, we don't understand that logic, but the the logic isn't to like make any friends, right? Um, no, makes sense. Logic true. is to secure resources. So, um, I mean, you said you already discussed the Global Fragility Act. I won't go into too much detail. It's been compared by the commentator to the Monroe Doctrine, mm. and in that sense, you know, there's some similarities. Um, That's true. But it, it, there's some differences too. It's uh, largely, you know, it was created to keep China and Russia out of these specific countries. Yeah because um, they don't want China and Russia securing uh, natural resources. And yeah. that's like fundamental to empire is securing you know, minerals and oil. Makes so, um, and which like as many people know, Haiti is suspected to have like vast mineral and uh, oil. Yeah. I think the, in terms of mineral that's been confirmed, oil, I, I don't, uh, I haven't done the research to be sure, but. Uh, there was Haiti, some found. Yeah. Yeah, there's some rumors of oil. There was exploitation back in the 70s, 80s as well. There's been companies in the past, but there was a um, there's oil rigs in the Dominican Republic. But there was a video and I wish I had it here, but they're showing thing and nothing confirms it. Um, but near the border between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, there was like it was like a video of like oil, like pouring out of the the ground. So uh, there's definitely some resource, untapped resources there that maybe um that hasn't been discovered or hasn't been put to use really for exploitation. Um, you, like look at American foreign policy elsewhere, like Bolivia, like uh -huh. you know, they helped foment and then support a coup there. Yeah, that's true. Or like the like lithium resources, and it's, yeah. um, and that's you know that's laid out not so much in the act itself as the Global Fragility Act, but it is laid out by a lot of the think tank uh, people. The um, you know, whether it's the American Enterprise Institute or uh, Carnegie, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're all essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. The Global Fragility Act first came out. Um, they hadn't named the countries yet. They hadn't named yeah. Haiti. Or anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It was specifically about there's these fragile countries, and it was discussion was mostly in the context of uh, terrorism and countries like Somalia. Yeah. Um, even though that Somalia didn't have falling under the Global Fragility Act and how to deal with uh, that kind of fragility that you know for the most part american foreign policy has caused yeah and how to keep yeah again china and russia out from securing those um mineral and energy resources and uh i don't want to like sidetrack the conversation too much but you look at ukraine you know that uh that, that kind of explanation is, has a lot of explanatory value for ukraine as well yeah where, like the Nord stream pipeline was yeah. yeah, and I'll likelihood blown up by the United States in order to prevent parts of Europe to become dependent or having exactly. a closer relationship with uh, with Russia, and instead import that stuff across the ocean. Um, yeah, they want to sell their LNG. Yeah, they want that. They want that liquefied natural gas uh, yeah. coming by the boatload. Yeah, <laughs> the risk of being like dumped into the ocean and like polluting it even further, rather than doing. Something which uh, I know the pipeline goes through the water, but it's arguably less risky. Than oh, for sure. The environment than sending it by the boat. boat no, boat that is that's facts. Also, and it just, costs much more. So the cost of energy for 
anyone dependent on that kind of energy is now has now gone up. So, and who benefits from that that uh, cost increase? The United States and yeah. the people who actually run that government. Yeah. That makes sense. And I didn't, uh, I'm fun. I'm happy you pointed out the link between the, I didn't, I didn't make that link until you mentioned the link between the Mon, kind of the Monroe Doctrine and Global Fragility Act. Cause there's not much, like they didn't give out much information about the Global Fragility Act. But if you go back, I mentioned it before the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, essentially saying, um, European powers, there's as on this half of the world here, um, if you try and colonize any territories here, we'll take it as an attack in, um, on the United States. Uh, we're not going to allow any type of influence here or any new colonies to shape in the Western Hemisphere. That was essentially the attitude that they had. And the Global Fragility Act, although it doesn't lay out the full details yet, it's still the scope of it seems to be somewhat the same. Yeah, and it's arguably another difference. Like my interpretation, I'm not a historian. Was yeah. like, no doctrine was like friendlier in a sense. It was just drawing lines. It wasn't. Yeah. Saying, European powers, you can't go plunder other parts of the planet like Africa, like go ahead yeah. and plunder. It's just this particular area is now under our control. It's our backyard. Basically. Whereas um, when it comes to the Global Agility Act and in the context of the war in Ukraine and the uh, escalation towards the war over Taiwan, mm -hmm. um, it's much more hostile. That makes it's sense. actually going into other countries and preventing investments and then um, uh, as far as a general foreign policy, which is trying to push back China and Russia's uh, yeah. uh, so-called influence. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. I honestly, like, I'm curious to see. I think the last, well, well just with what's going on in Haiti, Ukraine, and obviously the, the, what's going on with um, China, Taiwan, it's been an interesting couple years in terms of like the power, uh, power shifting and, um, more governments looking to make moves on a geopolitical uh, stance. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen in the next couple of years. I, I just read yesterday that um, they tried to put in possibly successfully money for arms for Taiwan in a bill that was largely for Ukraine. I read that actually. Yeah. So, I mean, that along with, you know, considering what's happened in Mali and now in Niger, Burkina Faso, you know, if you're like a savage imperialist uh, running the U.S., then this is all frightening. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, I mean, it's easy. good for the people there. Yeah. Ho hopefully it will be. They are military coups, but they also seem to have the support of the population because they're taking down Western-backed governments. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so in that context, their, their fears are real, but their fears are based on the fact they're losing control of their ability to oppress and um exploit huge uh, swaths of the planet earth yeah especially if france like um i know in niger they cut off france 24 tv um they kicked out a they stopped the they suspended all exports of their minerals to the states and france and they recently kicked out a canadian mining company although i don't know what this canadian mining company was mining there but <clears throat> kicked out that Canadian mine company so their operations right now are suspended um, but with that too, obviously they've been using, cause I, I think you might've mentioned that to me yesterday or somewhere in an article, but around 30, if not 30 and 40% of their electricity comes from, uh, Nigeria. So parts of Niger are in blackout now because Nigeria has taken the stance so far has taken the side of the imperialist to kind of like 
um, they're taking a stance. Oh, well, this is a illegal coup. We should put the guy the restore order and stuff like that. So we got a few African countries, including um, Nigeria and Benin, that are actually taking the stance of the imperialists. Although I know Nigeria is more linked to um, has U.S. and U.K. influence. I'm not sure for Benin, uh, Benin but I th- they might have been a former French colony, except I'm not 100 percent sure on that. But they've taken exactly the stance. Exactly what you're talking about, like the, uh, you know, it's, it, it can't be a satisfactory situation for any country to have roughly half your electricity needs dependent on another country, right? Right. Yeah. So um, for that to be kind of the status quo, it's understandable that they're pushing back and even willing to go without electricity, so they can then, you know, work out deals with whether it be China or Russia to then start building infrastructure, so they're not dependent on other states who are themselves beholden to exactly uh, U.S. imperialists. Yeah, exactly. Everything... With Haiti, like the the you started with the paragraph on uh, Moise building diplomatic relations with China uh, with yeah. uh, Russia. Excuse me. Undoubtedly, a major factor, probably what sealed the deal in terms of it being assassinated. Oh yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, China itself had reached out and tried to uh, offer large um, um, infrastructure deals around uh, electricity and so on. And um, you know, because of the political turmoil and the fact that uh, Moise had lost lost complete control, it was just uh, ignored. But um, these countries are willing to do it. They're willing to make friends and make long-term deals that benefit both sides. Uh, both sides in the end. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right, we'll get to the second topic here. It's, I was going to talk about the Kingston Joint Dec- uh, Declaration. I'll pull it up here. I stole this from you, Travis. You had shared this in uh, one of your articles on Canada Haiti Info Project. The link. Um, so I'm just going to read the Kingston Declaration Project. And I'll just give ask you opinion on it. So. For those who don't know, there was a meeting in Kingston, Jamaica, I'd say about three weeks ago. Maybe it's been a, over a month now, at least. Yeah, probably a month. Um, yeah, three, talk, four weeks. Yeah. yeah, three, four weeks. Yeah, basically just to talk about solutions for helping Haiti. It was hosted in Jamaica. Um, during that time as well, there was um, this was around the time, too, that Andre Holm, Andrew Holmes, the prime minister of Jamaica, was kind of was saying he'd be able he'd be able to add some Jamaican troops to this multinational force. Um, meet the lead. So I'll get the de- declaration. So they had they met for three days, but really seems like Ariel was there for maybe one day. Um, but I'll get to that and ask a question for Travis. So, and by the way, this is in French. I'll read it in French here, but I'll be able to translate in English for you, the important parts. Um, les partis politiques et les organisations de la société civile signataires de la présente considérant la situation d'exception du pays désirer de contribuer à l'élaboration de la résolution finale du sommet interhaïtien de Kingston. Um, convaincu de la nécessité de mettre fin aux souffrances endurées par les populations haïtiennes de fait de, du fait des actions violentes des gangs armés. Um, préoccupé par les problèmes humanitaires liés au flux des déplacés internes, à la résurgence du choléra, à l'insécurité alimentaire. Alarmé par la destruction du tissu économique du pays, propose. So these are at this point I'm getting to the proposal. So these are what after the meeting, these are like the main proposals that they come came up with. Um, Rétablissement du pouvoir exécutif. So putting back a executive power in place in Haiti, uh, a presidential college, um, un gouvernement d'unité nationale dirigé par le premier ministre, 
So obviously a normal restoration of power with the prime minister and um, eventually a actual head of state as such as the president. Le gouvernement devrait satisfaire les priorités définies d'une feuille de route tenant lien des termes de référence pour la transition. Il s'attaquera à respecter les prescriptions constitutionnelles concernant la participation des femmes. So more women involvement in essentially politics as well. And then le gouvernement devrait créer les conditions nécessaires pour assurer la confiance à la population, instaurer un climat de sécurité favorable. So just making it uh, the country more secure and making the population feel safe so they can go out and go about their days and not be stuck at home uh, before by 6 p.m. in the afternoon. So you've got the signees here. And maybe, Travis, you know some of these. Who I see A-Day, uh, Claude Joseph's party. I see Famila Valas here. Um, PHTK um, signed this. Do you notice any? Should I, is there anyone I should mention that's, that signed this from the signatures? Uh, I mean, there's a, a new Pat Dummy, the yeah. Montana Accord. Um, yeah, I mean, they're all notable to a degree. Some of these. Oh uh, my God! But, sorry, I'm no. I've been I've been reading this and not sharing it on the screen here. There you go. So for the audience that sorry for the audience that I've been reading, this is what I've been reading. This is the declaration project from uh, posted by Senator Stephen Benoit. So this is the declaration I was reading just so you guys can refer to it. So sorry, back to you, Travis. Kingston Declaration, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say. The, um, I mean, those negotiations in general, um, Algonaki was criticized because he, he made one speech and then walked out of the room. Yeah. Poured himself, <laughs> you know, himself a drink. He had to be shamed into coming back to even attend any other meetings. And reportedly in those meetings, uh, said straight up, there will be no like new declarations. No, you know, I'm here to to broaden my my coalition, broaden the consensus under his uh, his uh, high uh, uh, transition council, and so yeah. on and so forth. So he had zero intention to go and negotiate anything. Okay, he made it clear from the beginning. Um, there was some excitement, maybe like tepid excitement around this declaration. Which has been unofficially termed, yeah, the Kingston Joint Declaration. Because if you Google the Kingston Declaration, you'll get something completely different yeah. from like 15 years ago. Um, so that term isn't isn't easily found on Google, but you can see in that uh, article. Um, you know, it's uh, eight political parties and a couple of civil society groups. Although that's a separate conversation to discuss really what the Montana Court is right now. Mm-hmm. Agreeing to a general framework that is not very different from the Montana Accord. So um, I don't know how significant it is. Um, you know, they're basically saying they want a bicameral government, which is, you know, a president and a prime minister. They want the three branches of government restored. And they want a transitional government leading to elections. I don't see any significant difference between that and the fundamental you know, outline for the uh, the Montana Accord. Uh, yeah, and... No, no, sorry, keep going. As to who the signatories are, um, it's an odd mix of parties. I mean, just the EDE right there, like Claude Joseph, you know, we have, like, solidarity groups in North America protesting him anytime he shows up, understandably, because he's, like, mired in corruption. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a one politician party. Um, the something that should be noted is that the declaration itself, mm-hmm. according to the leader of UNIR, um, 
Bazin's Renoir, that he's the one that initiated the declaration. Okay. And that should be differentiated from a coalition. They have not announced that they're in any kind of coalition. It's just the declaration. True. Uh, the PHTK is in there, which with all this sloganeering and sort of the, the way that things are reported on, you would be, uh, I, I wouldn't like hold it against anybody to think that the PHTK and Afghan are, are, the, are the same thing. Yeah. But the president of the party has separated himself from for quite a while now. I'm not saying that's authentic. It mm-hmm. might just be political maneuvering. But these other parties have chosen to sign a declaration with the PHTK and Claude Joseph. And that includes parties that are supposed to be on the left, like Famille Lavalas or Unia um, or Mopad. So I believe is one of the parties that are there. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you have I, I guess you would call them civil society groups. It's a uh, it's a really broad term, but uh, New Pap Domi is essentially the petrol challengers, the the yeah. leaders of the protests in 2018, uh, younger millennial, largely middle class kind of uh, movement, and um, they're they're a fundamental organization uh, in terms of bringing the Montana Accord to fruition. But they're signing separately along with the Montana Accord, which, again, like, what is the Montana Accord now? Most of the parties who are signatories to this declaration are themselves signatories to the Montana Accord. (laughs) So, So, but who's new? Like, Claude Joseph is new, I think. Um, One of the newest, at least. Yeah, and we're noting that the PHTK was also a signatory to the Montana Accord. Um, so the Montana Accord, I, I write, write about them a lot and, um, you know, they're led by essentially three individuals. Mm-hmm. There's James Beltis, who is a foundational member of New Pab Dummy and a Petro Challenger. Okay. Um, there's, uh, Jacques Ted St. Dick, who himself has more of an academic background as an economist. Okay. Um, and then there's uh, Magali Komodini, who is like, you know, heavily involved in the coup against Aristide. Um, she has, you know, she was part of the, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into go on, on a tangent there, but you can read yeah, the article, yeah. it's uh, outlined there, and look up her name in terms of the coup. And she was, you know, actively involved, not just in the coup, but in trying to jail Lavalas leaders and pursue. Uh, false allegations and so on against uh, the Lavalas leaders like uh, uh, Saint-Just who were left over after the coup. Um, you know, these are the people who are leading this like like democracy movement. Yeah. Um, and just for our audience, though, guys, these are the so these are the leaders and a lot of their names have been mentioned. Just for example, like Travis mentioned, she was heavily involved in the coup. A guy like I've mentioned it briefly in the past, a guy like Ariane Henry, for example, Right after, and maybe Travis might know more about this, but right after the coup, um, right after the coup d'état happened, he had a role into selecting a was it politicians or was a selecting a new leader? Back um, yeah, there was like a a council of the wise or a council of sages yes. um, that was nominated, selected, yeah, <laughs> by the uh, the people who orchestrated the coup, yeah. and among those seven people was Aguilari. Yeah. And their job was to select um, 
I don't want, I don't want, like, you could say a transitional government. I don't want to say a transitional yeah, yeah. government. Choose a coup government, yeah. <laughs> illegal <laughs> regime to take to rule Haiti. And Magali Como Denis was one of the ministers who was selected by um, this, uh, this uh, Council of the Wise. So, like, you know, doesn't mean they're personal friends, but uh, they're certainly yeah. both shoulder to shoulder as, as being uh, intimately involved in the coup and the uh, campaign afterwards to oppress and suppress. Uh, um, family Lavalas and Lavalas generally. Yeah. And just to show you guys, so like this is this is something that happened literally back like more than 10 years ago. And you see they still have some sort of role or influence on politics going on um today, which is I wouldn't say surprising, but um it's still shocking in a sense. Still shocking in a sense that and a lot of these people, especially for a guy like Ariel Henry, I can't speak on uh, Marie yeah. Como, but he's a his main his main occupation is a doctor, he's a neurosurgeon, right? So for him to be still involved in this is just telling in the political landscape going um, in Haiti right now. Yeah, I mean, there was the, okay, I'll, I'll finish the point first, like around yeah, yeah. Montana, it's that, you know, the, I, made the, I made the argument several times and I really haven't received any pushback. And the coalition behind the Montana Accord, when it was first announced, mm -hmm. was arguably quite strong and quite broad. Hundreds of organizations, uh, political parties, but this includes like peasants organizations, civil society groups, for some are legit and some aren't, like as in yeah. some are NED funded and some aren't. Um, but that coalition quickly fell apart mm -hmm. because the leadership, Como Denis and Saint Dick largely, just continually appealed to the United States for power, asking them to hand power from Elia Ali to them. Um, so now they cut the word, you know, two years away from that. Now the coalition is, is done. It's pretty obvious. Now I, I made the argument in different articles. Yeah. Um, so what are they now? What does Mackenzie Como's Denny's signature mean on this joint declaration? <laughs> I don't know, but who is she representing? As far as I can tell, the Montana court has become a civil society group that represents a sector of the Haitian bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. um, which is exactly you know, who they are. So it makes sense that it devolved to, to that. Yeah. Um, and it speaks volumes that even New Pap Dummy feels like they need to send a separate representative to sign, negotiate and sign on their behalf as well, which should, it should be noted that their representative is Jeffsky Poinsky, who himself okay. is, you know, Petro Challenger come New Pap Dummy. He currently works for Partners Global, which is bankrolled by, you know, the American State Department, uh, uh, George Soros, uh, all, all the rest. Okay. So, New Pap Dummy is completely beholden to the U.S., um, as is a Montana Accord. Um, so, it's that much more shocking to see what are supposed to be more legitimate left of center parties like uh, Family Level S join a coalition um, with the likes of the PHGK and uh, Montana Accord and uh, New Pap Dummy. No, that is. I know that honestly, that's interesting too. Because, like you said, what has and you kept me. We have conversations in the past, and you mentioned like what has this Montana Accord like become really. Like, as well, yeah, and like, that's it, my best assessment now. Because I mean, like, are they worth listening to? Do they represent anybody? Again, probably a tiny handful of bourgeoisie. I think my uh, this is a good time to to pause it because my computer is going to be forced. No, that's what forced <laughs> update in the moment. 
All right, so guys, we'll be back. I'm just gonna cut off here, but we'll be back. We'll be back for the other parts of the discussion. Thanks, Travis. Thank you. All right, cool. Sounds good. All right, guys, welcome back. We just had a little short break. Um, we're gonna go back into the Kingston Joint Declaration where we left off. Um, so, so there's something that Travis wants to mention in terms of the involvement of Familia Valas in the Kingston Declaration and in Haiti. Travis, um, let us know what you're talking about. Um, well, I think it's significant because uh, you know Familia Valas as a as a political party mm -hmm. um you know it, it going back in time used to represent the vast majority of the population at least and the, pause the for a sec just so the audience for you guys don't know family Lavalas was the party of uh popular president jean bertrand aristide back in the day sorry go ahead yeah so there's like an important distinction between lavalas as a movement and family lavalas as a political party okay which yeah, I make the mistake all the time, and I think a lot of other uh, commentators and writers do too, of like conflating the two. Yeah, uh, Lavalas is a very general pro-democracy movement. Um, you know, it's essentially speaking to gra a grassroots desire for democracy and sovereignty amongst the majority of the population of uh, of Haiti. Okay. Whereas, like, Family Lavalas is a political party, and. Um, that's the picture I sent you from the San Francisco Bay uh, Review. There, it's pull it up here. It's, it's fair to say that Lavalas and democracy, in in the context of Haiti, are synonyms. Okay, um, they're, they're synonymous. Oh, okay, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. But Fanmi Lavalas and democracy are not synonyms. Fanmi Lavalas is a political party. Um, Fanmi Lavalas, headed by Jean Bertrand Aristide, you know, if he were the leader, it's that he undoubtedly would get a majority of votes tomorrow if there yeah. were an election, just like he would have any other year, going back to his uh, initial um, his initial election in the early nineties. Um, he is that popular, and he has the trust of the population. But he's a single person; he's a single individual, and he has made it explicitly clear that he's stepped back from politics. Mm, um, okay. So in its place, you have family Lavalas, a small political party, arguably, that yeah. should be differentiated from the movement. I don't think they're synonymous anymore. You could make the argument they were up until about 2004 yeah. or five. But I can see how people conflate the two. So when you have, uh, you know, the party of Aristide signing a joint declaration, with a couple of civil society groups that are totally, you know, bought and owned by um, the United States, along with mm -hmm. the PHGK, along with the EDE, Close Joseph's like one man party. Yeah. Um, it, it should make people step back and go, you know, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And it's something I've had to come to grips to as well because the, you know, I don't want to speak for other people, but I think generally, if you, you could say that the, um, People who are brought into the Haiti Solidarity Movement around the coup against Aristide are going to, um, you know, have a, unconsciously or not, equate uh, Haitian sovereignty, democracy with Lavalas. And like I said, for a time, that was also family Lavalas. And if you don't, if you haven't carefully tracked the kind of evolution and progression of family Lavalas as a party, you may actually think that. Um, they're they're still one and the same and they're not 
there's been breakaways from family loss level loss over time um very early on after after the the coup but also um sorry one second no i'll take it down i just had a little visitor in the room yeah <laughs> um but later on uh later on you have other um politicians breaking away and forming their own parties um maybe most famously is uh moise jean Chal, but um there are there are others as well yeah and you know the, the the original leadership of the party even when when rsc was removed in the us canada france that coup there were still were leaders left over but they've since then are no longer in leadership positions uh even when neptune has re like retired as far as i can tell okay he was the pm under aristide yeah um you have uh reverend jean just who himself uh he passed away unfortunately um mm -hmm. and uh for for reasons I can't explain, Aristide chose um, Nexus to take over his uh, take over the party. He gave her his blessing. Um, she herself had been active in in the movement, but when that leadership took took over, they slowly started working, moving towards being much more of a just kind of left of center uh, party. They're you know they're social democrats. They want investments in social housing and infrastructure and so on but they're they're far from being a revolutionary party let alone a party that really represents the people and um they're like riding on just the name at this point i find like yeah, you, name... you see a big generational divide like if i'm talking to someone you know older millennial or a gen xer for which i sit yeah. right on right on the line between the two like lavalaz's part and family lavalaz's part of any conversation they kind of center the conversation about Haiti. Yeah. When I talk to somebody younger, it's like, why, why are we spending so much time talking about family level or the level movement? It's understandable. They become not irrelevant, but they become just another among several left of center parties. Yeah. Um, who, uh, like, I, I don't want to be too critical. No, but they, even the a, last... there was a concerted movement against them. So, like, the election that brought uh, Martelli to power. Mm -hmm. They were deliberately excluded from the election. So all the people who point mm -hmm. that out, I mean, they're, they're correct. They were deliberately left uh, left uh, excluded from the election because they would have won, and they would have won with a huge majority. The next election, um, it was looking like it was going to be the same thing, but they they made the wrong call, and Platform uh, Petit Dessalin and uh, Famille Lavalas decided to run an election they they knew was rigged, and everyone said was was rigged again by the United States. Yeah. Um, so they kind of legitimized that election that brought that brought uh, Moise to power, Jovenel Moise, and uh, simultaneously made themselves even less um, relevant on the on the political scene. Mm. So, um, you know, those results aren't particularly important because it was a rigged election. But yeah, it's, it's worth noting that Petit, for what what votes came in, platform Petit Dessalin had more votes than Family Lavalas. I don't know if that's meaningful, but I'm just throwing it yeah. out there. So we fast forward to now, and uh, you know, if Family Level has done anything of significance since about 2018, you know, please write me on Twitter. I'd like yeah. to know what it is because <laughs> they put out these statements that are vague and cliched. Um, they're part of coalitions. They're not part of coalitions. They they join in declarations. They don't. They're just. They seem to be like all these other political parties in Haiti. 
and here I'm being specific to political parties and not popular organizations like Molagath. I want to make a distinction. Yeah. But the political parties themselves who theoretically intellectually run candidates and try to get seats. That um, they just every six to eight months reshuffle the deck, put out a declaration that they like democracy and um, and move on with their lives. Basically. It seems. Um, and the disconnect between them and the Haitian people is just growing every week. Yeah. Um, they like, there was a particularly telling interview when Fritz uh, Jean, the president elect of uh, the uh, nominated by the Montana Accord. Mm -hmm. um, so, not, not the president uh, at all, but just the Montana Accord's uh, selection for that position in a transitional government. He did a tour of Canada fairly recently. Okay. And kind of an offhand comments mentioned that, uh, you know, he spends weeks locked up and barricaded in his home. And this is like in a neighborhood that is itself barricaded and locked up and has thousands of security guards um, who function like, you know, they're armed security yeah. guards. They're, they're functionally private police officers for the wealthy, the bourgeoisie. Basically. Uh, so there's like a very physical disconnect from all these politicians. His experience, I'm sure, speaks to all these other politicians, too. Like, tell me the last time you've seen a lot of the last leader, you know, walking through La Saline or Cité Soleil or Bel Air, like any of these neighborhoods to speak to or like or even uh, be close to the experience of the Haitian. It doesn't no. happen. And like, I, I don't it's easy for me to say from like my my home in montreal like uh, why don't you go wait into like a potentially gang infested area um no but i know what you mean by that but still i what you're what you're bringing up is fast because even for me like i was five when the coup d'etat like happened in a horse so all when i started following politics all i knew i knew about family Valas, but all i knew that was in charge was phtk and then the others maybe smaller significant parties so whenever there is like campaigns going on, you are right. Even the more visible party was always Piashtika and a few others. I forgot the one that was led by, um, I forgot what his name is, Papas. I'll go back to it. But the, essentially the guy that was, that went to meet with Russian, um, Russian delegates. Yeah, that's, that's uh, Moïse Jean-Charles, yeah. Jean-Moïse Jean-Charles, he was yeah. close to, in that rig election, he was second, he was, uh, he got the second most um, votes. Um but I've never, I've never seen like a, a pop, uh, a party like Family Lavalas. I've never seen actually a leader go in and actually, um, you know, go to his people or go to its audience and say, "Hey, we're gonna do this or try and do that," or actually go into the community and meet with these people and see what they want and what they their needs are. So, no, I totally agree on that. It's true. And uh, I'm gonna add, like, I'm those those connections to a degree were deliberately severed in the post coup period. Like yeah. the the coup government, um, with the help of you know um, the United States and Canada and France, backed up by um, so-called human rights groups like RNDDH, like there was a campaign of terror and oppression against Lavalas uh, and Family Lavalas as a party, which included you know jailing uh, leaders and and that's not just like in Port-au-Prince; it's across uh, across Haiti mm -hmm. and. That's being acknowledged. Like that came, campaign was largely successful. You know, they murdered leaders like Dreadwell May. They mm -hmm. terrorized other leaders like uh, Yvonne Neptune successfully kind of pushed them into retirement. 
others just you know died of natural causes and so on like uh and Jones, sorry but... who was you on neptune again just from our collection he was a pm under um under aristide aristide okay okay yeah so he yeah i don't want to go there's a whole story to say about him but um, yeah. he was targeted largely by the rnddh um accused of crimes and commits uh, all the rest of it um the rnddh had a had a deal with the coup government where essentially they pointed a finger at somebody they're instantly thrown in jail ah, um, and okay. then rnddh representatives like maggie olangio who is now part of the uh, fjkl uh, mm -hmm. would uh, help interrogate them and essentially try to convince them to take to help uh give false testimony against you know, more important uh lava last leaders so all this to say that the campaign was successful and what emerged was an executive council for family Lavalas that was already showing that it was probably disconnected fairly disconnected from the people and that mm -hmm. just been exacerbated over time like one of the one of the members of the executive council is uh pasha vorbe he's like from one of the wealthiest families in haiti that he seems to be different from his brother who is you know one of the many poster boys for corruption yeah he seems to genuinely care but he lives you know in opulence and it's not uh, the same reality uh, and it was actually he was attacked there was an attempted assassination so he, you know he he has to live his life in a wheelchair an electric mm. wheelchair so i mean I, I, anyway i don't want to get down the weeds of it yeah yeah, so but least, i didn't say know that. that the executive council of uh family Lavalas is not occupied by people who live amongst the poor and the quality of the MPs that who were elected on the family Lavalas banner in the um, in the election they shouldn't participate in that brought Jovenel to uh, the power um, were a far cry from the <laughs> the quality of candidates that they they had let's say under like previous uh, democratic elections like the one that brought Archie to power in two thousand three and four. Okay. Okay. No, that is interesting, and but uh, I don't want to stay on it too long. But back for the the family of Valence, what do you think? Obviously, there was a coup, um, um, the coup d'état, and that happened. So the, I know the party kind of lost its, um, I guess, foundation. You could say that was built up. But when do you think the? Why do you think that there hasn't been someone genuine? No, corruption, I know, obviously, blame for it. But why do you think there hasn't been a leader with kind of like I said that's shown up since or a party? somewhat a popular party like family Valas that hasn't had significant um influence i've always found that weird to me i'll give uh i'll give some thoughts but um that's some that's probably a question that's better for someone who uh, has like a stronger grasp of the history yeah um like someone like kim i was like physically there when arc was brought in as a leader because yeah. there, there was a whole pro-democracy movements that existed before arc came in as the new leader for the party yeah. that was going to represent that movement. So it's not that Aristide didn't have a role in, in it. He's like a charismatic uh, leader. He has the trust of Asian people or the vast majority of them. So I don't want to, uh, it's not like I'm denigrating it. Yeah. But he was someone who was nominated to leadership of a movement that had fought for, you know, Haitian democracy and sovereignty previous to his becoming the leader. That, that's okay. all, that's all the only point I'm making. Okay. Um, why hasn't a new leader emerged i'm not i've never even been to haiti so i'm not going to speak to what's happening yeah, on yeah. the ground there but reiterate that these political parties themselves um the last ballot there's like 
last well, election. There were like dozens of parties. There's too many political parties. All yeah, yeah, political I saw parties that. are <laughs> there are political parties for they're like Clojure that's new party. They're they're a party for one candidate. Yeah. Uh often who's running for president who's uh yeah, running for the district president. Um and they've become disconnected from the people. I mean, if you look at the way at least over the past few years, it speaks to what I was just discussing in terms of the like the physical break between the political class themselves who are, you know, wealthy living in Pessinoville or in even nicer places uh, who are like physically disconnected from the people who are living in other parts of Porto Pines or even yeah. outside of, uh, outside of Porto Pines, which I think is part of the reason why you have these uh, leaders, uh, local leaders or community leaders emerging um, because there's, there's a leadership vacuum. Facts. True. Yeah. Cause I mean, if Family Lavalas had any of the support they had under Aristide, yeah, you're, exactly, the political landscape would be completely different. There'd be someone unifying the Haitian people. Yeah. Uh, but right now they're de they're dependent on their local leader, and if that local leader is a, a gang lord, then you know maybe they're giving them just enough to uh, get by, but they're also terrorizing the population. Uh, they may be leaders of like. Um, maybe more authentic leaders like Muscadet, who himself is like, he's technically an elected official or he's a commissioner. Yeah. Um, he has the support of the people. Basically. You know, people show up by the hundreds of the thousands to, to show their support for him. And there's other, there's other examples of that. And I, I, I think you would need to be on the ground in Haiti um, to see who these leaders are. Um, I, I'm always watching carefully to the reports of uh, journalists who are actually on the ground. And when someone seems to be speaking on behalf of their, at least of their neighborhood, take note of who they are. Um, but I think those are the authentic, authentic leaders right now. And the only thing that'd be preventing them from perhaps gaining more traction mm -hmm. is uh, I would point to a couple of things. One is like, to, I mean, Pato Plains is largely cut off from the rest of Haiti by you know, oligarch-backed criminal gangs. Yeah. And they, then Porto Place itself is broken up or ghettoized into parts and they can't, people can't uh, go back and forth between certain neighborhoods. Yeah, true. Um, so it's understandably difficult to um, start a political uh, movement under those conditions. Uh, simultaneously, the the media and these human rights organizations like FJKL and RNDDH like relentlessly criticize any leader who steps up, um, who steps up to uh, speak on behalf of their, of their neighborhood, of their community, whoever it may be. And these organizations are beholden to the United States, but they get a lot of airtime. You know, they get a lot of attention. Uh, there's a lot of people on the left in the Haiti Solidarity Movement who understand that the RNDDH are not a credible organization. Yeah. Uh, they're intimately involved in the coup. <laughs> uh, is like, I, I can't I can't think of an example of someone who's any more corrupt than he is, and we can spend a lot of time talking about him and the RNDDH if you like. And also, you made me notice how corrupt he is. I didn't know the amount of stuff he's gotten away with since literally, like, <laughs> since, like, 04 is ridiculous. But sorry, keep going. Yeah, it, it is astonishing, and uh, I don't mean to be critical of anybody who who uh, didn't notice because, like, I'm one of them. Yeah. Um, I came into Haiti Solidarity, like, like I said earlier in the interview, like 2008, and I had like you know a general understanding of Canada. That's why I was involved because I'm Canadian. The Canadian government was involved in yeah. uh, meddling in Haitian democracy and uh, and sovereignty, 
um, and I had a general outline for the coup and understood, you know, what was going on, but I didn't have an intimate understanding. I wasn't involved in the period of time where there was like, a, you know, a lot of dedicated activists, very intelligent people, many of whom went on to like a more academic career who were doing on the ground research, writing articles, um, uh, being part of delegations and so on. Um, and one of their main targets was the what was the first NCHR Haiti and then became the RNDDH when they were forced to change their name. Mm-hmm. Um, because they they were being funded by these, these Western governments who backed the coup to essentially echo their interests and to help demonize um, leaders, not just like Aristide, but like I've mentioned previously, other leaders like uh, Yvonne Neptune and John Just and so on. Dread Will May, uh, like a like on the ground kind of grassroots leaders like Dread Will May or Samba, Samba Bookman. There's, there's, the list goes on and on. And uh, FJKL is sometimes treated as like, you know, maybe uh, something that's more legit um, or a separate organization, but it needs to be understood that FJKL, Fondation Jeclair, um, there's two people. The the leader is technically Samuel Madestain, who himself is a politician. He ran for the head of Mopad. Okay. Um, And it should be noted that he helped, uh, he represented Gajanel Boulos, when Bulos was accused of um, possibly being behind the murder of Jovenel Moise. So this guy himself... So did, repeat that again for me? He, he Yeah, he represented uh, Reginald Bulos. Oh. So Reginald Bulos is, you know, when we talk about like Haitian oligarchs, he is like yeah. poster boy for like Haitian oligarch interfering with Haitian democracy and and uh, sovereignty. He was like a key figure in the group of 184, who then mm-hmm. you know, allegedly... Um, hired uh, paramilitaries like you like to terrorize the population, essentially undermine the de- democratic of the government and bring in the coup government. So, um, you know, there's very very few who are worse than than Bulos. Um, Madestain represented him. So, just like the RDDH is better understood as like a political organization under the facade of a, a human rights organization, FJKL is the same way. The kind of the next higher up in FJKL is uh, Maggie Olengil. She recently spoke at the UN Security Council. Um, she's often framed as like being somehow different. She, she mm-hmm. was part of RNDDH when RNDDH and CHR Haiti were doing all these things in Haiti. Okay, so um, in fact, she was like, as far as we can tell, was one of the main interrogators. So the RNDDH mm-hmm. would, or NCHR Haiti is their, their previous name. Would yeah. point to a Lavalas activist, militant, whoever it may be. The police, the Panache would go and arrest them, and uh, they'd be thrown in jail. And then she would show up to help in the interrogation, often playing the good cop in the interrogation, trying to elicit some sort of um, uh, false testimony to uh, frame um, somebody else. Okay, okay, okay. This this isn't coming from a personal opinion. This comes mm-hmm. from Joseph and the BAI, but it was also it was echoed by several. Um, civilians who themselves, once they were released, uh, said, yes, this, this person, Nagy Lengil, is the person who showed up and tried to intimidate me into giving false testimony. She's the person who was chosen, I think it was by the United States, it may have been by the UN, to speak on behalf of Haiti and the, yeah. uh, the security crisis, the last Security Council meeting. And she's, off, she's often cited in, in interviews in Haiti and outside Haiti for her expertise on human rights. She has 
no expertise on human rights. <laughs> yeah, no. Get an espionage. They work for, you know, imperialists. They work for the U.S. government and sometimes for the French and Canadian governments and occasionally wedge in their own personal uh, interests uh, in there. But that's how they keep their organizations funded through uh, American money. So yeah. we don't know exactly who funds FJKL, but they've officially partnered with the U.S. Um, just maybe a couple months ago, they had a, a series of workshops where they were uh, with uh, Strommeyer, the Charles d'affaires uh, for Haiti at the time, where he celebrated their human rights work. So that just, you know, if you have a representative of the United States celebrating human rights work, it means you're not doing any human rights. You're just uh, mm -hmm. pushing U.S. policies. I agree. And then you'll you'll see, like, in Another Vision, they visit, um, the documentary Another Vision, they visit Pierre Bonas' uh, office. He's proud of the award he has on his wall from the U.S. Embassy. And it's often one of the people they'll call to give uh, testimony. So these all yeah, sure. organizations aren't legitimate. There's three human rights groups that get attention from the media in and outside Haiti. Those are two of them. The third is CARD, for which I'm less critical of them. I'm not saying they get everything right, but they certainly don't seem to be completely beholden to U.S. interests. I'm not sure why that's the case. I, I haven't been able to figure out who funds them and you know what the character of their leadership is. But um, if we take the case of uh, Boacale, mm -hmm. like the grassroots movement to uh, rid uh, Haiti of, uh, of gangs. Um, Card has made a point of collecting data and reporting on the data and have been pretty fair about it and saying like, Wakale was largely successful. Like kidnappings came to almost complete halt for a period of time. Uh, yeah. Murders as well, especially if you don't count the murders of gang members um, by the uh, by Boacale. Um, whereas FJKL's response was to condemn Muscadet for doing essentially what Boacale is doing, and RNDDH was uh, very critical of Boacale. So, just Obviously. like you said, you can see right there that uh, there is there is a notable difference um, between those uh, three organizations. Yeah, one of them really powerful too, and obviously RNDDH, based on their track record, they weren't always whatever. I was surprised they wouldn't support the Boacale movement, considering the reports they've written in the, in the past. But I'm surprised there hasn't been, and maybe I haven't seen it, but from what I've seen on social media as well, I thought there'd be more, um, I'd say more dissent or more uh, backfiring from the gangs or maybe police trying to stop. But I know police may not have all the resources to spend their time doing that and making sure people aren't going out. But at the same time, there's been few instances like you mentioned um gangs retaliating in certain neighborhoods um here and there however i have not seen it on a one death is still a lot but regardless i haven't seen it on a large scale where um if i were it's easy for me like i said easy for me to say i'm here in canada i i haven't seen a large scale where me being down there doing the black movement would be feel intimidated at the moment that's just my opinion though from and to from doing it from um the gangs um Okay, um, <clears throat> so we had covered Family Lavalas, their involvement in Haiti as well. We're gonna get into quickly. This is just a um, quick discussion about multi the multinational force. So I'll pull up something here for the audience. Uh, Travis, pull up an article. 
So um, this is from news from this week too. Kenya considers leading a force in Haiti. What you need to know. So Kenya said is willing to lead a multinational force in crisis hit Haiti. The announcement represents a possible breakthrough for supporters such intervention who have argued it is needed to address spiraling insecurity, gang violence, and a growing humanitarian urgency in the Caribbean nation. Last year, Haiti's interim government officially requested interim government to clear de facto it's their interim government unelected government officially requested international deployment garnering support from the un secretary general antonio guter and the united states so kenya although and we've seen this is a trend i've seen because i'll get back to it. this is a trend i've seen a lot with the criminations and not to say i i look at the data and Still, Haiti is worse off than most of the Crimination Service security. Um, but with that being said, when I saw um, Kingston said they're ready to lead, I'm like, well, they have problems at home. Like Kingston is riddled, like the Kingston, Jamaica is riddled with gangs. And there's kids like there's like nine, 10 year old kids getting caught with gangs and doing gang activity. So they have their own issues there. <clears throat> Kenya as well. Two things. They've got their own issues in the capital as well in terms of murder, homicide, violence against women. And the police there also has a history of abuse against uh, towards their citizens. Um, now, also, we've seen the uh, deployed. I believe it was the Bahamas that committed 150 uh, as well troops. I have not checked the data into security, but <clears throat> the fact that uh, one, uh, 150, I don't see that's a significant number um, where I'd say, oh, well, that 150 could go help um, in the Bahamas. But still, they've got their own issues as well. But. My main question is, from what, from your perspective, how do you see this? And we spoke about this before too, but where do you see this going? Like now, they've got, you've got a Kenya, an African. Like I said, when we spoke on the phone, I they they this went from U.S. to Canada because they didn't want to lead. They asked Canada to lead it. Canada transferred this to Caribbean nation. It was left there at that, and now they went all the way to Africa asking for help. So. How do you see this playing out? Honestly, if you were to put your prediction, like, do you see a, if so, two reasons, I'll, I'll lay this question out for you. If there is a eventual intervention, do you th believe it'll be a multinational force with a multiple country actually going in and assist, um, assisting? Or do you think that it'll eventually one country will say, okay, time's up. This is what we're going to, we're going to go into this. We're going to go and lead it or maybe a UN uh, resort to a UN's type of occupation. What do you think? Um, well, the first thing I would say is like the next meeting of the Security Council is like the most important factor. Like, will will Russia and or China simply block the effort? As much will. as Kenya has said that they're willing to provide these hundred police officers, um, they they were careful to say like based on this next meeting and the UN mandate and so on and so forth and yeah, I agree. More likely than not, it will be blocked. I think Russia, because of lobbying efforts, largely Russia has a the Russian embassy has a better understanding of the political situation in Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, China, I don't know. They've seemed open to some sort of police force, but um, I don't know what's happening in the background in terms of organizations or governments reaching out to try to like yeah inform China what the actual situation is and that. Tatiana doesn't represent Haitians at all, and his approval uh, for a multinational force is meaningless and, and so on and so forth. Um, also, like, 
yeah, we got to differentiate between the Car the Caribbean CARICOM and um, and these two African nations are showing an interest. Like the Caribbean, I think just like Canada, have no interest in leading it in yeah. part because they understand it's going to result in a quagmire. Haiti does not want Haitians do not want um, a multinational force in their yeah. country. Um, but also, it's totally self-interest. They they also are dealing with um, an influx of guns, and they're also dealing with an influx of Haitian uh, refugees or migrants, yeah. depending on how you view uh, the Haitians who are trying to escape the situation in Haiti. So yeah. they're not doing it out of any benevolence to want to help Haiti. They're doing it out of their own interests. Like they're often tiny islands; they don't have the infrastructure to take on hundreds of mi migrants. Well, they, exactly, they show up. And they're also fed up with their neighborhoods being fl flooded with uh, with guns. Yeah, yeah so it's no wonder there's a gang problem in um, in Jamaica. I don't know anything in, about Jamaica's internal politics, but based on the research of uh, Professor Taminasha John, uh, she said like um, something to the effect that like Jamaica is a you know, there's a huge Canadian military base there, and it seems to be a hub for moving guns around the uh, the Caribbean. So while some, mm -hmm. because all the ports are privately owned by oligarchs in Haiti, there's no doubt there's some guns just going straight in. Oh, yeah. But there there seem to be some routes that go through Jamaica before you get into uh, get into Haiti. And if they're going through Jamaica, then they can easily get to other islands in the Caribbean. No. So, and I also don't know anything about like the domestic political situation in Kenya, but while in, in the Caribbean, ways. they kind of had this like, self-interest in intervening for those two reasons to stop refugees from from leaving Haiti and to deal with the gun situation or to have more leverage against the United States in these, in these negotiations because yeah. the government definitely knows that the, how, that the guns are leaving yeah um, and just don't care I, I can tell you exactly what the interests are in the part of the leaders of, uh, of Kenya and Rwanda yeah but as far as I can tell, they themselves have no real credibility. They're authoritarians themselves and have probably been offered some sweetheart deal in terms of uh, investments in, in their countries. That maybe. To benefit them. Yeah. And look at that point. I forgot to make a point. <clears throat> maybe for Kenya too, they might not, assuming they do lead, maybe they have, I'd say, not less to lose, but maybe a little less to lose if they, um, they do go into Haiti just because, also, um, Dan Cohen had, had uh, shared a, an article showing that the U.S. was seemed like the U.S. would fully, um, fully help fund if Kenya were to lead. So, full fund in terms of weapons and whatever they need to do down there and do the job. So, yeah, which speaks to the like Kenya leading, I think, is a joke. Yeah, yeah. The usual <laughs> imperialist powers, maybe not France, but the United States and Canada leading it in any authentic way. Yeah. With uh, Kenya providing the soldiers and maybe you know uh, providing the police, excuse me, and uh, being on the ground and so on. But uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping that um, the lobbying from from organizations in the United States and hopefully by some people in Haiti that I'm uh, I'm not aware of will will lead to uh, Russia and perhaps China just blocking it in the first place and then they're right back where they were before. Um, the fact that, or the strong likelihood that any intervention in Haiti will lead to a quagmire is certainly a factor in any kind of leader's calculations. And do they want to get bogged down that way? Um, 
and the fact that you know they, the majority of Haitians do not want a, an occu- um, a military force in Haiti. Yeah. Um, but uh, whatever force goes in will inevitably be under the auspices of the of the State Department and, and so on. The American government will be will be leading. The USA at the end of the day, <laughs> it probably be that their names will be attached to it. Okay. Um, now, mainly just uh, I haven't seen there hasn't been much. I, I still see it here and there. Um, there was a a hearing in the United States, and they're talking about it has. Oh my God, um, Andrew uh, Nichols. Um, I'm shaking. Let me get pull up here. It was Nichols, a representative from the UN, and then uh, Ted Cruz. But the one I want to point out in and they're talking about they briefly it wasn't about Jimmy Shears here barbecue, but they briefly mentioned it at the start. Um, and, but you can see uh, when Ted Cruz, which he seen like, you know, like I've I've seen I haven't followed him much. Um, his fault. Pol- I've seen some of his policies or when he's spoken, he's he, in general, he seems like a. I wouldn't say he has any. Uh, well, he's a politician there, but he seems like a well-spoken person but in general, like his policies are reasonably unfair. But when he was he was talking about Are you Haiti, mean Ted Cruz, Ted, um, am I saying Ted Cruz? It's a uh, no, not Ted Cruz. Sorry, <laughs> Marco Rubio. Okay, that's my bad. So, Ted Cruz, Texas. That's my fault. So, um, Rubio. Let me pull it up here first, just so I'm not getting full. Yeah, because Ted Cruz is sort of yeah, no, kind of vehemently anti-Castro, anti-communist. Uh, you know, any leftist movement is. Sorry. Yeah, no. Sorry, guys. U.S. Bad. Senator Mark Antonio Rubio. So not, Rubio is much better, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, so it was Rubio that was speaking, but he made, he was making, like, when he was talking about the facts and, like, what's going on in Haiti, already had mentioned, he said, and, and I quote, um, barbecue basically who controls most of the capital. And that's not a, and that's what he used to say, oh, like there's an issue in Haiti. He was going into insecurity, um, violence against women, stuff like that. And then he quote and said, yeah, and there's gangs like a barbecue, which controls most of the capital of Port-au-Prince. And then they went on and so on. So there's this narrative again, obviously we're not, I'm surprised by it. There's this narrative that again, um, Jimmy Cherizier is the main cause and the, the, the problem that's going on in Haiti. And the, the, the way they're speaking about it, it makes it seem like once he's gone, um, Haiti will be much, much better. Um, now, obviously, we've talked about this in the past, the mainstream narrative um, around it. What do you think, in your opinion, would would help um, shift that in mainstream um, in mainstream in your in, in from your observation? Um, uh, well, my observation would be that there's like a coherent view on the left of what a solution should be for for haiti like what to advocate for yeah like fundamentally that's the issue yeah like, I, i'm not trying to avoid speaking about sherry's no no Although and please no. gonna get me in trouble with certain people but um yeah, yeah i will no. get there but my point is there is no coherent view from the left outside haiti on who to advocate for what who to support so i like, contrast this with again the solidarity movement that formed around the coup and Aristide being taken out and so on, it was very straightforward. Like, put Aristide back in power, stop the campaign against Family Lavalas and Lavalas generally. It was a very, uh, like, there, there was a one, it was a very clear message. Yeah. Um, There's very little disagreement. There were, like, outliers, like Michael Debert, who, like, isn't 
really on the left in any, any sense and he's just a bad journalist but for the most part <laughs> people were like people people agreed on that you had like the haiti action committee being formed around that you had like very solidarity groups in europe and canada they had, like it was just there was a uniform agreement that this is the message that rsc was taking out in a coup he needs to be restored to power stop supporting the coup government and so on and so forth but i don't want to go down that uh rabbit yeah, hole again yeah. but now there's no coherent message um, we have two groups here in Montreal, uh, Debout for Dignité, which is a fairly new group. It's church-based. It's largely a co one congregation, um, but there are many hundreds um, in that congregation. Mm -hmm. And their message is pretty straightforward. Like, we're desperate. We can't see any other way. We trust the Canadian government. We want the Canadian government to lead intervention in Haiti. It's explicit. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> we, but that's how they feel. Yeah. Um, there's a Solidarité Quebec IT, who I couldn't say how many people they represent because it's not as simple as it's a congregation for a church. Yeah, yeah. But certainly there's informed uh, leaders, longtime activists. Um, but my understanding is there's no leader of the organization. They're a leaderless organization, they're just spokespeople. Spokespeople for their, the their official statement backed the Montana Accord. Yeah. With reservations, sure. but fundamentally backed the Montana Accord. And then um, uh, Andre, who is kind of one of the spokespeople, also backs uh, an intervention in Haiti under the Montana Accord. Yeah. Which it should be emphasized the Montana Accord, Fami Lavalas, all these parties, they all back an intervention of some form, but they want to do it under what they perceive as democratic control of Haiti under a transitional government. So he has to be removed from power. If you're part of the Montana coalition, if that actually exists, then they would have to be in place. And then they would start allowing something like this Kenyan police force in Montana, uh, Lavalas feels the same way. And my understanding is these other parties do too, like, you know, they fundamentally agree there has to be some sort of intervention. It says they need to be in power when it happens and not Agyanagi. Um, so yeah, working across these solidarity groups, and then you have like Haiti Action Committee uh, based in California. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, um, they're they're very active. There's like a lot of like, um, I'm, I'm looking for the right uh, sin. I'm sorry, De dedicated longtime activists working as part of a Haiti Action Committee. They are totally against supporting the Pan Ash in any way, shape, or form because they view them as a corrupt institution. They want support for Alagelahi withdrawn, but they don't offer any kind of this is who you should support. They're they're Lavalas stalwarts in the sense that they they are to a degree uh Lavalas outlet, and it's unclear whether that's a family Lavalas outlet or a Lavalas outlet, but um they routinely translate and publish um family Lavalas statements. So I think it's fair to say that they are supportive of uh, family level s and then one can assume then their policies which then they diverge because they're saying don't support the pan ash but level s is actually saying support the pan ash but only once there's a transitional government in power that's representative of the population yeah and then <laughs> there's a black alliance for peace which i uh you know have i support and and um praise a lot they're they along with it liberty are the reason why Russia and China are informed and blocked attempts to intervene in Haiti. <laughs> yeah. So 
it's hard to give them more credit more credit than they deserve. Like they deserve tons of credit. Yeah. To organizations. Um, Black Alliance for Peace is formally tied to sorry, tied to is a strong word. They have a relationship with uh, Molagaf. Okay. I'm not gonna remember what the acronym actually stands for, but they're an anti imperialist uh, leftist or uh, popular organization uh, based in Haiti. Um, they were part of the initial Montana Corps, but were one of the first groups to withdraw, saying, you know, this organization has become corrupt and doesn't represent the, uh, the Haitian people. Um, they themselves are against any form of intervention. So, you know, just, to, just having listed four organizations there, there's no, there's no consistency in terms of their message. And there's no advocacy for what do we support this political party? Do we support this popular organization? You know, uh, BAP has backed Molagaf, they're a popular organization, but as much as I'm enthusiastic for Molagaf, I can't pretend they have a, uh, a lot of support amongst the population. Like I would say they, as far as their ideals, there's a lot of support, mm -hmm. but um, in terms of actual numbers, it would appear at a rally held by Molagaf, no, they'll get, you know, two, three dozen people, it seems, when they, have a, when they have a rally. So to me, that's what's fundamental to, uh, you know, you brought up Sherry Z and so on, but what's fundamental is there's no, here in the US and in Europe, who to support? There's True. no consistency. So if you were like a normie trying to look at the situation and going, who am I supposed to back? There's, uh, there's, <laughs> you there's no know. consistency, uh, you know, who, um, whereas you go back 20 years and there was like uh, unanimity in terms of in terms of the message. Okay, that makes sense. And going back and I didn't want to. And what I mean by because um, I always mention I almost mention his name every episode. What I mean by that, I just find it. It's just always I, the reason I bring him up all the time is just always the I still get surprised till this day. Um, the the. Although there's UN reports showing, um, there's, um, I'm supporting how showing most kidnappings were um, Vitalom, Katamas, and other gangs as well. Um, those names don't get mentioned um, as much in mainstream media as I think it should, in my opinion. If you're gonna, because if you're gonna bring up him, then bring up the three as well. Um, that's in my opinion. If you're gonna bring up Jimmy, um, not uh, barbecue, then you'd have to bring up all of them at the same time and saying they're controlling if you want to go with that narrative they're controlling the um, zones and then that always makes me um and always leads me to think that okay well makes me think that even more that these bigger um gangs like such as Vitalom Katsomazo are more politically tied or have more political influence than maybe I thought meaning their backing is from uh, maybe more po uh, politicians business side in Haiti as well so Oh, definitely. They're like, well, definitely. I can't produce the evidence, but yeah, but Katsama was a Vitalom's uh, gang. Yeah, essentially, most of JPEP backed by oligarchs and corrupt politicians. Like, yes, yeah, no doubt in my mind. And that's where there's there is consensus on the left in North America on some issues. Algi has to go. Yeah. Um, and um, you know that there's oligarch bad gangs where things diverge wildly is over the issue of Jimmy Sherizier, and that's somewhere where like I had like uh, withheld an opinion largely because uh, until my last article for 
Canada files largely because it was so contentious and not that I didn't want to, I uh, withheld an opinion that I didn't want to um, get the blowback that was guaranteed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because I felt the need to do the research. Makes sense. When I say do the research, there's no exaggeration to say I've put in well over 100 hours at this point. Um, Easily. Probably closer to 150. Um, and mostly focused on what I'll frame as episode one of the uh, documentary Another Vision, which yeah. is created by Dan Cohen and Kim Ives. So yeah. to backtrack a bit on this, Previous to the editor of IT Liberté, whose name is Brittany Dupont, mm -hmm. as Kim I was tell the story, uh, asking Kim to go to Delmas and look into this Jimmy Sherry's aid because maybe the official narrative is wrong. Previous to that, mm -hmm. there was unanimity across any possible organization or person outside of Haiti on who Jimmy Sherry's aid was. And um, that was that he's just another gangster leader who's just got this new kind of story, but he's the same as uh, Toto Constant. He's the same as Guy Philippe. He's the same as mm -hmm. uh, whoever you want, like U.S. oligarch-backed um, gang or par paramilitary leader. Hell yeah, yeah. Absolute unanimity. And um, what's what he sometimes leaves out this in this is like there's also unanimity in regurgitating, repeating RNDDH and FJKL reports. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm hoping you mentioned that. Yeah. That's what kind of shocked me. Because um, I kind of like my personal side of it is I, like many people, was watching Democracy Now, walking, watching Kim Ives as I do as part of my role for, uh, for the website, for the chip website. And I was perfectly aware, just like everyone was watching him, like he just said Jimmy Sherry's yeah, is not a gang leader. He's actually. Um, I'm not sure if you, yeah, no, he probably said like in gang, very careful kind of marks. Of yeah. Not a gang leader, not the typical gang leader. You could say. Yeah. I, I think he did use the revolu uh, revolutionary, but, um, yeah. a revolutionary potential, something like that. Yeah. And I was as shocked, I think as anybody else, but, um, as someone who reads about observes from afar, if someone like. Kim Ives comes out and says something like that, I don't immediately then dismiss them. Yeah. I go like, holy shit, I need to do a lot more reading and figure out where this is coming from and then watching and so on, which is what I did. Yeah. And, but unfortunately for kind of other, other voices, uh, prominent voices kind of in the, I don't want to say in a movement, cause I'm, I'm not sure there is one, but Haiti solidarity yeah. generally, um, there was an instant condemnation that, Kim Ives is just, you know, lost his mind or he's whatever yeah. it is. You know, there's a bunch of accusations. Um, I think that's, well, it's not just wrong. It's just, it's also disrespectful because, like, he, just like many other bigger voices, have had, like, he's had a prominent role um, for decades. So just like if, you know, Seth Donnelly or somebody from Haiti Action Committee said something totally, you know, different from the narrative I understood, my response would be, okay, now I really want to understand why they're saying that. Because well, if, exactly. they're saying, if they're saying it, there's a good reason for it. If Jean Saintville, if uh, François-André, like some of the names in in, uh, in Canada, same thing. Yeah. Steve Engler, they said something totally 
different from the narrative I understood, my, my response would be, now I want to understand more. I'm not going to start condemning you. Well, me too. And you could put on a bigger scope. We're talking about, hey, but that's with any major um, uh, breakthrough. I know Ed, um, I know Edward, like just small things, like Edward Snowden went through a journalist, but exposing the Five Eyes and what, how America, the government, the American government were spying on its citizens, um, even on the war crimes that were exposed by Julian Assange. Although those were on a bigger scale, but they came out and they didn't, it didn't necessarily follow the narrative of the United States. Well, the United States, because like, back then, well, we know now there's there's war crime. There's some war crimes happening, but most I'm sure many, most people didn't think the United States would commit um, blatant like war crimes and not not accidents. I mean, like actual war crimes as well. And then not until that got exposed and whoever at the time were able to see the video. I believe it might be still on YouTube, but they might have taken it off. But it was still on YouTube for a long time. But the videos, it did change people's narrative, um, not feeling towards the country because just like, like, you know, like. If you're, if you're American, you're supposed to love your country. That's where you're from. I'm not saying that, but it definitely changed um, the way they viewed their their military for sure, and what the Americans do, uh, what the Americans are doing abroad, um, as well. Because um, then that image, although that narrative of like fight for democracy, fight for democracy, you saw that picture, and it changed people's views and opinions as well. So, um, if it had gotten shut down, if people maybe had hadn't believed Julian Assange, or they it got, or the mainstream was able to spin it quick. We might not know about these. There may be a lot of things that were exposed after that um, as well. Yeah, so exactly. That's, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, like, it's a separate conversation, but it should be noted there's like a fairly small handful of people who are following and talking about writing about Haiti in the English language yeah. on the left at all. True. So after this interview with Democracy Now!, which everyone should watch, um, in part because um, it's. I think it's a key point in like a uh, democracy now's devolution into a more mainstream liberal. Yeah, I've because <laughs> they didn't know what to do with that conversation. Yeah, but um, Kim Ives was was being interviewed along with Daudan Wei from Komakoda, um, a small uh, solidarity group based in New York, mm-hmm. and um, Daudan Wei's response turned out to be kind of the. Uh, illustrative of a lot of other responses that came from uh, a lot of the more prominent voices, which was mm, like immediate dismissal. And then the rhetoric uh, that they used became, it wasn't just dismissive. It wasn't just aggressive. It was, uh, it didn't lead, uh, to politely say it didn't lead to any further dialogue. It was immediately yeah, shut down. It was shut down and based. I know some, like, I know, I know some people may, are saying he's spreading misinfo um or um with that but to that point two things i find a lot of people voicing that haven't seen because me i'll tell you like i um i had made a video i didn't um i thought me if a person i was always skeptical before i had seen a documentary i was always a bit on edge i was more i'd say 70 30 in the side that jimmy sherizier is um like the uh the the typical gang member However, what always struck, in my opinion, what always struck um, me, he was always the, and as I was always noticed, but it also fed into me thinking that, but he was always the face of it. While when I looked at Haitian, like um, Haitian media as well, they would mention other, the other gangs, oh, this gang committed this crime today. I see these gangs on social media, like Izo, one of the biggest gang, had a, it got put down now, but he had a um, YouTube page. As uh, as well, and he's um making music videos and high. I'm just saying like high quality like music videos. Like it looked like it came out from the states. So I was like, okay, well, 
think these guys aren't getting shown. But the thing with Jimmy, um, with with that, I think a lot of people maybe be stuck in. Um, maybe it's hard. To, I maybe hard to believe. Like you won't see it until it won't. Since you haven't seen it, you can't. You won't believe it. But I find a lot of people haven't um, tried to find that and try to prove their. Or try to maybe not unlearn, but. Um, change their opinion right because there, there's the information out there um there's certain information out there you can find there's obviously the documentary um, you contribute to it but mainly created by dan cohen and and Tim Isa, which that turned that switched my opinion once and just by the way guys just to tell you um um one important fact in 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 the documentary just to show like certain parts that that convinced me a bit and then again that's just my opinion i don't know what he does down there i'm not down there that's just my opinion but there was a part in part one or part two, and Jimmy Shears is getting interviewed, and he mentioned how Reginald Boulos had offered him 30K to go burn down a Toyota dealership near his Nissan um, dealership, and he said no. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm a typical gang, like me, if I'm a typical gang leader and I'm about, like, I live that life, I would have done, like, I would have done it no problem if I had the resources. I would have taken the 30 G's and um, done it. But there's certain things like that that were highlighted in the documentary, which kind of pointed to me, well, he's not the typical guy that the mainstream media is painting him to be. And I'll always mention this too. In the UN um, the UN sanctions, he was the only one saying, like, this is after the missionary kidnapping. So at that point, Katsamaozo was already known to have kidnapped um, those 16 missionaries. I believe one or two Canadians were in there too. And he had Vitalon, which was already well-known, one of the biggest gangs in Port-au-Prince. And yet the one that was sanctioned was um, uh, Bar uh, Jimmy Cherizier. So for me, if it were to be consistent, it would have been all three of them, <laughs> not just one guy. At least it would have made more sense for me to have all three of them except one. Yeah, Jimmy Cherizier was sanctioned under Trump. That's how long ago he was sanctioned. Under Trump? Um, yeah, really early on. Not that the sanctions are meaningful. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. In order to do what the same thing that the mainstream media was to like make him the face of gang violence, uh, gangs, period, for Haiti. Yeah. He's like the poster boy for it. The media is made it that way. So, um, sorry, I've got a lot to say based on all your uh, comments there. I'm just trying to like uh, order them. Yeah, like, no, just and, like in a nutshell, like, sorry, just to hone in on like the Reginald Bulos thing. Yeah. Um, like I understand why that was convincing. At the same time, someone who's like playing devil's advocate or doesn't believe the narrative could say he's lying. Yeah, um, true. It is like a fact of the matter because Sherzy will admit it. He took money from Bulos. Yeah, he he was an apolitical police officer who. This is when he was on the on the on the police force still, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how down the rabbit hole I want to go. The, yeah, I know. Go ahead. The, there's two crimes that he was essentially accused of that um, became sort of the original his original sin, which then any other crime there needed need to be any evidence, it could just be pinned to him because you'd always refer back to these two massacres that he he's responsible for. Uh, the first one. So I'm going to preface this with saying I'm not here to say. Um, Jimmy Sherry is revolutionary. To me, it's yeah. up to the Haitians to decide who their leader is. However, yeah. all this research and time I put in makes it to me like unequivocal. There is an NED, a US backed propaganda campaign against them. 
if that's the case, that should cause people on the left to pause because the NED does not, you know, NED, the U.S. government and so on, they don't have campaigns to uh, against people who they actually support. Yeah. They do it to tarnish the image of people who they don't like or to boost the image of people who they do like. Um, so the NED, yeah, anyway, that's a separate conversation. But um, there was um, a police mission, mission uh, anti-gang operation under Minusta, Minujust, excuse me, mm-hmm. into Guarvin. Um Hundreds of police officers, Umo, like a very different kinds. Some that were uh, developed under uh, Minujust, others were just Payanash. And they went in to try to take out a gang in, in so many words. Um, whether it was intentional or not, there was a complete operational failure. Everybody knew what was going to happen. It was being discussed on the radio before the operation happens. Everybody in Grand Ravine knew the police are coming to take out a gang, which means the gang's name as well. And as the story goes, and this is, I think they're largely agreed upon in the various fake human rights reports by the RNDDH uh, and so on. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the mission did not go well. And one unit, which Jimmy Sherry was a part of, again, mm-hmm. just a police officer at the time, uh, specialized in UDMO, but the police officer, was told from someone working in a school, uh, not a school for children, but like a, I think it was a religious school, um, that there was a stash of guns being used by gang members in the building on this compound. Oh, I see. So this police force goes in expecting to find guns, but instead found gang members. So like the moment the door opens, they start shooting. Um, and in the midst of the shootout, two police officers are killed and um, civilians are killed. There's no doubt in total it's somewhere around eight or nine. Yeah. Um, at first, all the all the various uh, police officers took part in the in the uh, mission were awarded and so on and so forth. But then the RNDDH produced a report blaming the Panache for what happened, and the Panache do what what they do, which is they found people to roll over on, um, and either dismiss or uh, or punish. Yeah. For which Jimmy Sherry did one of them. So, what can be confirmed just by looking at media reports is that. There, there was, there very much seemed to be a police officer who did turn around and and execute civilians or shoot civilians. But actually, looking at the narrative, there it turns out there were two brothers on on that in that unit. Okay. When they walked in, only to find a bunch of armed gang members shooting back at them, one of them was killed. Oh, I see. I see. Um, and as the shootout continues, the the brother lost it and started unloading and, and did kill um people who i mean I'm, I'm not i'm not going to i can't get into his head but you yeah, know, yeah that kind of scenario he may not have understood who was who was on the right side of the, or the yeah yeah it makes sense. at that point there was some from potential friendly fire or there was potentially friendly fire, but also uh Im- immediately because in the context of the story of the narrative that seems to be accepted by all sides. Yeah. They were told there was a store of guns that are actually armed gangsters in there. Yeah. So the response of the police, of the members of the unit who survived was, were we just set up? 
Mm. Now, in the different testimonies you get, it's clear it was chaotic. There were some of these police officers who were telling civilians to stay down in order to protect them. Like, if you Mm -hmm. get up, you're going to get shot in the crossfire. Simultaneously, there's this, I'm not going to remember the name right now, but there's this uh, the surviving brother who, based on all reports, did shoot civilians. Did he understand their civilians at the time or think that he'd been set up or they were part of the gang pretending to be civilians? I don't know. Oh, no. Yeah, I see what you mean. But it was a chaotic situation. And what the fundamental cause of, of, of it was a really poorly organized menu just like the blame falls on them because they fundamentally organized the the mission they're responsible for the fact that everybody knew including gang members that was going to happen so of course it was destined to fail and it was just because there's so many institutions involved maybe just yeah. the nash the un they're all just trying to download the responsibility onto eventually a handful of cops um so what happens next is um there are several there are several protests um several dozen the reports are kind of vague but based on the little bit of video that's available and pictures we're talking 40 to 50 people mostly police officers sometimes with their families immediately start protesting with attempt to blame this on a handful of uh, police officers who were just trying mm. to go collect collect guns out of a, a shed in the back of a uh, yeah compound. um arguably this is like if you if you look at the kind of dynamics, it's there's a similarity block right there. Yeah. Now that's essentially the end of the story. He gets Sherry Z gets blamed. Another uh, police officer is blamed. Others are disciplined, or necessarily dismissed from the force, and um, and that's it. He's actually not like held accountable for any of this until after the next crime he's accused of, which is the last lane massacre. So he just mm-hmm. goes back to his neighborhood and lives there, and they just basically ignore him. He, as far as I know, he's still collecting a paycheck. That could be wrong. Yeah. Um, but he just goes back to to live his life, and and that's it. But the mythology that's been built up around it is that Jimmy Shares is responsible for for a massacre in Grand Ravine. At no point was he ever blamed for hurting anybody. He's sometimes blamed for the fact that they they broke away from the operation to go collect these guns. Yeah, but that's trusting the leadership of the Van Ash <laughs> and Minujust to be telling you the truth. Which no, exactly. I mean, there's no reason to to believe that they're, they're saying the truth and no. not just rolling over on a couple of uh, cops um, because of what happened. Some Where's civilians were killed. It's clear, but they were killed by this other police officer whose brother was killed too. So. It wasn't Jerry's yet. And that's just a fact of the matter. It's all documented. You can find online. And I'm eventually going to finish this report and I'll put you for all that information will be organized. But if people are interested, they can contact me on Twitter and I can pass on those articles because it's not it's not up for debate. Jerry yeah, yeah. didn't kill any civilians, nor is he responsible for any civilians dying. But you wouldn't know that listening to some of these human rights reports that came later. Which, and, uh, which is sorry, not inter- that's what one of part of the uh, documentary highlighted once that report came out then everyone just used that report a couple reports and just ran with it and it made its way through mainstream but go ahead yeah it was an easy narrative yeah um but it, keeping in mind at the time of this is like to that november 2017 mm-hmm. at the time Cherzy has not declared a revolution true he hasn't formed the g9 true he's just a, a, a cop turned ex-cop 
So according to, according to his version of events, he then goes home and sees that gangs are trying to take over his neighborhood. He gets together a handful of other cops. One could assume cops who are just as disaffected as he was, whether or not they're actually removed from the force. Yeah. But he already had a lot of sympathy from clearly dozens of other police officers at that point and clears the gang out and forms what is called in Haiti and elsewhere like a vigilance brigade. Uh, I'll be accused of propaganda for saying that. No, no. <laughs> other people will say he formed a gang and then just started terrorizing the population there. Yeah. But based on the footage of people going into this neighborhood and talking to people, everyone is praising him for protecting them. No one yeah. And no I can actually, yeah. Oh, sorry, go sorry ahead. not to advocate. Um, I actually, I forgot to bring up this point. I have a friend that has family that lives near Cité Soleil. And this is just his point of view. He doesn't follow politics and seem that way. He doesn't follow much anymore. But he said where that gang, where he had family where it's um, in Cité Soleil, where Jimmy Shears was occupying for a bit. I don't know if he's still there now, but this was like when he was there like eight months ago. He said they're there to protect them. Like they see him like those gangs, they'll walk around. Some The way he explained to me, some of those gang members, they'll walk around the neighborhood. They'll have their guns on them. They're not necessarily doing anything to the, the, the population. Like people are crossing them, knowing who they are, with their guns in the, in their hands, but they're not scared of them. Um, so that's something he pointed. To. This was the end when he was there um, eight months ago as well. He does have family. He's here back and forth, but has family down Cité Soleil, um, near Cité Soleil, and that's the and some of the even I can speak for the some a few Haitians down there. Um, based on the documentary, but also from what I'm hearing down there too, some people feel the same uh, about him as well. So yeah, which again speaks to the critics of the documentary. Yeah, haven't seen the documentary. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, so it's not just that you can't have a conversation with it, but it's that like it almost seems willful. They don't want to watch it because you don't want to see the hundreds of citizens of Dalmas exactly. praising him or at least appreciating him for what he's doing yeah. as a leader. Yeah, and you definitely don't want to see the footage of him holding a rally in La Saline, the place he's accused of committing a massacre, yeah. with upwards of a thousand or more people cheering him on and following him in a big demonstration, which has been repeated over since then, over since many times. Uh, you don't want if you're a critic and you're and you're repeating this this line that he's a gang leader and he's like one of the worst things to to ever come to Haiti. He's just another Guy Philippe or Toto Constant. You definitely don't want to watch that because of the yeah. <laughs> distance going to cause. You definitely don't want others to watch it either. No, it's um, literally like you need to watch. It's literally like once you get to hey, it, it's, it's your opinion, all that. But I feel once you get to part one of the documentary, I think at that point, there's already a lot to work on and maybe shape opinions or I maybe have a different view of the situation. Um, but that's just yeah. how I view it. No, I, I agree. I'm, I mean, like a, we have a generational difference. Like we've got about 20 years between us. Yeah. And um, the, so when I'm going in, I'm coming walking with certain like prejudices and like um, this kind of connects to what we were talking about earlier with Lavalas because the second crime that he's accused of, uh, the, the what's called the Lasalian Massacre, that's much more contentious in that it's easy to deconstruct and then discredit the accusations around the ground ravine incidents um it's simpler in a sense there's less to it yeah but when it comes to lastly massacre if you if you want to discuss this now do you want to go into yeah we can go into it yeah. okay so um this is where the conversation about lavalas and family lavalas becomes much more relevant okay because of the the commentators researchers activists and so on who are kind of speaking 
repeating this narrative about him being a gang leader and him being responsible for massacres, there are going to be some segments who just kind of regurgitate these RNDDH reports, which are, again, are, they're not a credible organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some who won't. There's some who totally understand RNDDH is not a credible organization, but we still agree with what essentially what they're saying because Lavalas is also saying, uh, sorry, family Lavalas, I need to be careful about that, the political yeah. party is repeating a similar narrative. And even that they've gone to Haiti, gone to La Saline and spoken to people who are telling them this. So it's not strictly a disinformation campaign on the part of any of the US backed so-called human rights groups. It's not strictly that. That's where it gets kind of complicated. Okay, yeah. Um, but essentially there was a there was a incident in La Saline that depending on who you speak to and which version you read, was a conflict between two gangs that had been fighting it out, just like various gangs have been fighting for control of this market because they can extort the vendors there. Um, or it was a intentional massacre on the part of uh, two gangs who were beholden to two different political parties, one the PHGK and one uh, Family Lavalas, and that the PHGK gang went to go uh, cause a massacre or to, to, yeah, to do a massacre in La Saline in order yeah. to prevent a uh, another large anti-government demonstration. Um, and I'm going to go, I'm going to give a nutshell version of this because uh-huh. I, I'm producing a report on this, but also it's so easy to get into the weeds. We've been talking about this for like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially what, what the documentary uh, another vision is, uh, points to are in DDH and FJKL. They're, they're absolutely correct. And everyone mm-hmm. should go watch that documentary and make a dozen for themselves. But all it takes a little research to see how corrupt the DDH is and by virtue of uh, Maggie Olenjil being connected to them, FJKL as well, and their reports on this incident. Um, but what isn't discussed and what should we focus on more is the role of specific family Lavalas deputies. Mm-hmm. And then the political party using this incident essentially for political leverage. Um, Family Lavalas at the time of the what's called the Last Lane Massacre might be more accurately called a mass shooting or a particularly episode of a ongoing gang war. Um, The the Last Lane area where the massacre happened was controlled by a gang called uh, called themselves the Projet Last Lane Gang. They just named themselves after the neighborhood. Uh, led by Kiki, next lieutenant was uh, Boujan Jean. Next one down is uh, Joel Noel or Noel Joel, depending on which report you, you read. Okay. Um, the deputy MP who was mm-hmm. quoted in these reports, his name is uh, Roger Melier. And one of his kind of, uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Quentin Bellidao. And this kind of speaks to what I was talking about around family Lavalas kind of devolving into another political party and not being representative of Lavalas or any kind of democracy movement as a whole at all. Um, because they chose to run in what was going to be a rigged election that brought Jovenel Moïse to power, um, they kind of legitimized the election. But through that election, actually, some Lavalas deputy MPs did win and were brought to power, a handful. 
Mm. And um, some of the most outspoken were uh, Quentin Belizeau and uh, yeah. who still continue to this day to speak on behalf of Lavalas. Um, Millier is the most important to the story because he's quoted in the reports. Um, he's quoted as saying that he he was aware of a planning meeting where this uh, where Jimmy Sherzy met with these political leaders. Um, sorry, members of the PHGK to plan this massacre. Um, he's then quoted on giving a lot of the history of the gang warfare between the two gangs in the area. Yeah. Um, no one asks him how he knows about this planning meeting. He's, <laughs> okay. he's never challenged how yeah. he knows that Sherry Zier and PHGK officials met in Delmas, a place where one would assume he wasn't welcome. Like, was he looking through the window? Yeah. <laughs> no justification was given <laughs> sorry. whatsoever. I always find that funny. Um, I, because, yeah, because because we've talked about it before yeah. uh, personally, and it gets it gets ridiculous. So you get yeah. up and laugh despite <laughs> the fact that it's someone trying to manipulate, trying to get political leverage off the deaths of of civilians. So that's, yeah. that's it should be pointed out right away. As much as as ridiculous as Millian's behavior gets in the story I'm about to tell, he is fundamentally trying to gain political leverage for his party and for himself based on the deaths of civilians and that does include women and children yeah um it's it's sick <laughs> you know, I know. I like, yeah so because it's so sick you can't help but laugh so, no no that's literally how i feel about it. you've said the story i'm like i can't believe what go ahead sorry yeah so the uh, fjkl report and to a degree the rndh report acknowledge that this gang has connections to family level less but it's dropped right there they just mention it yeah they don't bother exploring it. And then they take verbatim what Rajemilien is telling them um, and then just put in their reports. And what he told them was, again, there's this planning meeting and then the police give uniforms over to the gang members so then they can go dress as police officers to go with intention to go murder um, Lavala supporters living in La Saline in order to discourage people from participating, patients from participating in a, another upcoming big protest. Yeah. A few weeks before, there had been a huge major protest um, under the banner of the Petro Challengers. Try, uh, it was like anti-government protests, anti-Jovenel Moise, but the main focus was, you know, what's happened to all this money, uh, Petro Caribe money, money that was, uh, I'm not going to go into that. People have to do research on that one. It's going to yeah. be a tangent. But uh, essentially lots of money that was supposed to go in infrastructure that was instead going into the pockets of uh, politicians and all of it just disappeared. Yeah, exactly. So it was a broad based movement, but it was very much when like physically organized and led by the Petro challengers. And that was new because in the past it had been a more grassroots when there was a big protest, they were more grassroots. Familas Lavalas did have a more prominent role, but all of a sudden they found themselves family last of the political party is largely irrelevant to the protests. And even a lot of last of the movements as just being a segment of this protest. Um, that was a, that was a, a big change, like arguably like a tectonic change in the dynamics of anti-government protests. Uh, it was no longer just a, a lot of last thing. It was a broad based protest across Haiti. And as far as organizing Petro challengers, uh, we're at the lead and, it was more focused on this issue and government corruption rather than any kind of revolutionary, let's bring back uh, Aristide or anything else. It was strictly yeah. that. So in this context, 
um, you know, gangs have never left Haiti. They've always been a, a part of life, mm-hmm. especially in uh, in Porto Prince. But um, we hadn't gotten to the, or Haiti and Porto Prince hadn't gotten to the point where the capital was uh, fractured into different segments. Uh, True. Yeah, but there were gangs, and Kwasi Lasling was one of them. And it had direct ties to family Lavalas, largely through this deputy MP, Kwasi Millier. <clears throat> so he very much seems to have taken the opportunity to take this one episode in an ongoing gang war to try to make family Lavalas the center of attention um, by saying this massacre is a massacre of um, of family Lavalas, of Lavalas supporters, because they want to stop us because we are the main engine, we are the main reason these protests are happening, and therefore the PSTK fearing us family Lavalas and our power and our ability to mobilize uh, Haitians wanted to try to prevent that from happening and prevent the next protest from happening. So they targeted us mm-hmm. in a broader context. You, when you look at the, the various reports, you see there's an ongoing gang war for years yeah. over that market, because you can, like, as I mentioned, you can extort all the people, all the vendors who work in the market. Um, so Roger Millier, wasn't really challenged on his narrative outside one interview where he met with uh where he met with uh, Le Nouvelliste and they sort of they, they clearly understand what's going on they go back a little bit further before this uh the, what's labeled the last day massacre or the, this uh mass shooting where somewhere between around 20 people were likely killed the numbers vary widely depending on the report you read mm-hmm. but the consensus seemed to be around uh in the low 20s um turns out that the beginning of the month two weeks before on november 1st uh, they the competing gang the one who went in and allegedly committed the massacre in Chabon, had attempted to assassinate the leadership of uh Project La Saline. wow so a small kind of hit squad like a handful of uh of gang members went in uh cornered the uh the leadership of Kwaje Lasseline successfully killed their leader, Kiki, and injured okay. some of the other members. And they were brought to the hospital. Um, Le Nouvelles interviews them in a, a key article, um, interviews Raja Emilien to say, like, something to the effect of, like, do you know um, Boujanjan and Kiki, the leaders of the uh, Kwaje Lasseline? He says, no, I don't know any Boujanjan. Then they go on to say, do you know Helve... I'm not going to pronounce his name in French, sorry, Bartholomew. It's like, yes, I know him, but I don't know Boujanda. Did you bring them to the hospital? Uh, yes, I did. Um, <laughs> but you didn't know them. He's like, no, I just, um, I'm a humanitarian and in times of war, there are certain things humanitarians have to do. So I drove these injured people to the hospital like any good person would do. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's the part that always kills that, me. That's, that's what you're supposed to believe. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know if he got called or what, but he was clearly nearby when this uh, assassination of the leader of Kwaje Lasseline is, is uh, when he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. He drives the other gang members to the hospital um, and then denies knowing who John is on and just claims like he's just kind of driving by and saw something happen instead of like, I know exactly who they are. The story continues where um, they have, you know, gang members or suspected gang members in the hospital and their various injuries. The leader Kiki was killed. Bujanjan was actually shot in the uh, buttocks 
Yeah. So I don't know how serious an injury it was, but obviously I needed some attention. Yeah. <laughs> and they're brought to a private hospital called Bernard Meps. Now, the next day, uh, somehow uh, there was a, two key articles that show that politicians, leaders of human, organi- uh, human rights organizations, so more than one, and leaders of political parties all showed up the next day to see Boujanjan. Okay. And then within hours, there were social media reports that the police were preventing the um, the staff from from caring for uh, for the injured in the hospital. So repeat that again. So who was there? There was human rights groups. The they call them responsable. So I can't say leader, but mm-hmm. representatives of human rights groups, yeah, parliamentarians, and not leaders, but responsable for political parties. So all of these all were magically all... show up within twelve hours of this gang leader being brought to the hospital. Right. And they're all at this, this for the audience, they're all at the same, they're all in the hospital all together at the same time, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a photo to like, you know, boom, oh, they're all there. But yeah, we yeah. have a couple of media reports that say they all went. Yeah. You know, Rajay Emilia has said he was there because he's admitted to driving Calvé and not uh, Um There, so we know he was there. Um, then... Uh, the infamous uh, Pierre Esperance, head of RNDDH, then called Capsi News to report specifically that uh, the PNH are preventing the good people, the good doctors and nurses at uh, Brown Mills Hospital from doing, from taking care of the injured, and it's scandalous, uh, which then forces the PNH to prepare statements and go ahead and say, like, no, they're not preventing people from doing their, their, uh, their work. And, you know, to a Western audience, to me, it sounded strange. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough line to argue that, like, if you have a suspected criminal or gangster who has been injured, the idea that you might put a police officer outside their door sound, makes sense to me. It makes very much sense to me. Yeah, that this person is yeah. accused of multiple crimes. The population yeah, yeah. is saying they're, he's a gang member who's extorting them. Yeah. Uh, you put someone out there. But the, the police, the PNH, who aren't to be trusted generally, but um, said straightforward, we're afraid the other gang members are going to come in and take them. And we want, we want to put them in jail. So yes, we have a police presence outside the doors of the hospital and near him, and that's just uh, the way it is. And he was actually <laughs> was actually brought to jail and remained there. He was going to be released in April of 2019, so he was barely in jail for a year. They're talking about releasing him, and when they did announce his release, um, a protest, uh, Last Lane residents went to the Palais de Justice and protested his release. They did not want him released. <laughs> like- so he's not some sort of like community leader accused of being a gang leader. He's just yeah. a straightforward gang leader who's exploring the population. Um, so with all this in mind, all this stuff is left out of the reports. I mean, first of all, these reports are produced by um, human rights organizations that aren't, that aren't legit. But mm-hmm. with this kind of this in mind that there's a level SMP in the same building as representatives from Undoubtedly, the RNDDH, because Pierre Espinosa knew what was going on, and possibly others, meaning it could have been FJKL, along with other uh, politicians, all in the same building. And then two weeks later, there's another incident, and then that's immediately framed as being a political incident rather than just another episode of a gang war. It, it should create at least suspicion and doubt over the the official narrative. Aside from this, so. I said I promised in a nutshell. So that's worth yeah. pointing out because based on my research, that's not in the documentary and it's not going to be in these reports. 
Um, Roger Millien was speaking to the media within hours saying, I invite human rights groups to come to last because <laughs> I would like to tell them what happens. So you can't make this up. Like there's, I saw, sorry, not to cut you. There's like so many, um, I was watching a different documentary, but it's like how many coincidences there can be until something, it's just mathematically not possible. Like how many, you know what I mean? And it's yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, family level us puts out a statement within 48 hours condemning his attack against them, against Lavalas, the party, because again, what very much seems to be the case is that Roger Millian saw as an opportunity to make Family Lavalas a target, to leverage the deaths of these people who may or may not have been supporters of Family Lavalas, I don't know, yeah. to leverage their deaths to, to boost their party. And whether or not the executive council of Family Lavalas knew that it was concocted or not, I don't know. It assumed the best and that it wasn't concocted, but they believed exactly what Roger Emilio was telling them, fed them lies, and they just went to repeat it. And so it's no wonder that when these uh, solidarity groups, activists, and so on, when they go to Haiti, they're going to Haiti to speak to, like they're going to speak to the exact same people who yeah. are, whether or not they are aware of it, spreading this narrative that was a false narrative. When you strip away all the lies, all the details, um, you're left with, um, victim testimony. Yeah. And you're left with contradictory victim testimony. That's the mo most important part. Um, Komakoda, for example, this is often brought up. They have, they have played victim testimony on the radio. It's all in Creole. So I don't understand it. I'm going to assume it's, uh, it's legit. And that yeah. some, that some of these victims identify Jimmy Sherizier. Mm. Um, if you watch the real news segments uh, put together by uh, Margaret Prescott, who was like should be congratulated for being the first person to try to go in to investigate. Uh, although I think I say she completely failed in her attempt, but she was, yeah. she, it, was uh, it was sincere. Like, yeah, she, she doesn't speak Creole. She doesn't speak French. She was being led around probably by RNDDH. Yeah, and she interviews multiple witnesses, uh, multiple victims. Sorry people who lost family members and so on, no one mentions Jimmy Sherry once. His name never comes up. No yeah. one's name comes up. They're just uh, talking, speaking to their experience. It's only once another another vision comes out and residents of um, Delmas are interviewed, there's multiple witnesses to say, to say that Jimmy Sherry was sleeping through the entire event when he was accused of being a leader yeah. of the massacre. I so, saw that. Not, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so you're left with victim testimony. Uh, contradictory victim testimony. So, um, you know, I, I'm not there to pick and choose and say who who's saying the truth and who's not. But when yeah, you yeah, but... the, when you know that RNDDH has a history, exactly documented history of trying to elicit false testimony out of people while in jail, um, when you know that they've produced multiple fake reports, when you know that they've actually manufactured past massacres to try to frame mm -hmm. other people. Um, then you can't help but feel at least a little skeptical about the official narrative, not completely abandoning it. And I would argue that the quality of victim testimony, because the, these people are desperate. So yeah. they're the, like Pierre being scum of the earth, whether he was willing to pay people off or so on, I don't know. But it's certainly not beyond the pale for his kind of behavior and for FJKL to say that they could have done it. But when you look at the, the I can't remember his name right now, but... Uh, one of the main witnesses they interview in another vision is an ex like mailman, uh, like partial delivery person. He's Haitian who went to live in New York for a good chunk of adulthood, but decided to retire in Haiti. 
Oh, so yeah. He, so he speaks English and he's able to speak to the camera in English without any subtitles. And he at least comes off as sincere. I like to make this guy, this retired mailman, yeah, <laughs> some kind of like lieutenant in a vast um, confederation of gangs. You'd, you'd have to prove it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's very is. hard to believe. He seems like very credible, especially when you see that he is the main reason there was a community organization, another vision where the document draws a title, which is essentially a charity that does things like day camps and music, musical wow. activities and so on, okay. providing activities to children, providing food for poor people like that, that, that he is one of the key witnesses to say, no, not only was Jimmy Sherry not there, that he was simultaneously hearing radio reports of Jimmy Cherizier leading a massacre in Lasoline while seeing him there waking up off a mattress on the floor yeah. in an apartment with other witnesses around. Yeah. Uh, so th there the narrative just kind of completely falls apart and I'm left with a, uh, you know, again, never been to Haiti, don't know, but all we have are these contradictory witness testimonies, the, the, Bulk of the evidence seems to favor the the narrative of uh, another vision. Yeah. No, that is crazy too. And um, to your point, like even some of the narratives, and I was um, looking at what's going uh, the coverage of what I was going on in um, Niger, and even some of the coverage, not just from France but other European um, countries, UK and stuff like that. It's the same thing um, in terms of like way to they're, they're they're framing it. Um, they're framing it as an illegal coup d'etat, but they're they're going about it. Well, the resolution for this is to restore proper um, um, proper order and proper government, and they're just running with that as well. So I could see if obviously I I don't know what's going. I don't know the sentiment in Niger, but it seems like if I were to hover around a number I, to be safe, I'd say at least thirty percent knows what's in terms like that. Um, have sorry, I'll be clear. At least thirty percent support this coup i would say in terms of because they i think that there's a, there's um because niger was a puppet um puppet regime if you guys don't know i only read this um this week but um a lot of minerals i don't know i didn't know niger had contained i mean minerals but a lot of mineral companies were suspended so uh, minerals coming from going to france suspended u.s suspended and as i mentioned previously in the episode um this canadian mining company as well um, eventually will get um, kicked out. But going back to them, the the narrative that's um, spinning, a lot of the mainstream is saying, oh, well, I'm um, needing to restore um, order, but not pointing out the fact again, and just going back to Jimmy Sherry, not pointing out the fact that um, although this coup d'etat was done by the um, general leader from the military and used this force to do it, I'm not pointing out the fact that the coup regime is just a main uh, puppet and that this guy right here actually has um, some support from his population. So we'll see what they do next with that. But uh, what happened a lot of this, we just always made me lead back to just uh, the portrayal, the portrayal of certain situation in the news and how easy it is and how convincing, honestly, it is. If you've seen one, because obviously, like I'm going and I'm not going to stay on this too long. But if I if I don't know anything about uh, Haiti and I read a human rights report and I see what they say in it, most people would take it to heart and wouldn't find a reason as to why they would lie or try and provide false information. Yeah, absolutely. And when you have the added complication of of family Lavalas essentially participating in this disinformation disinformation campaign, mm -hmm. whether it's knowingly or not, um, is no wonder. And like that's you know, that's part of what I'm speaking to when I'm talking about this, because getting into the weeds like this 
um, for someone who's not following Haiti in detail and maybe not since and has been following since the coup, it, it's irrelevant or it's boring. But um, the, the point has to be made, like, we have to distinguish between family Lavalas and Lavalas as a movement. And we have to understand, like, what who they are now and who they've been since about 2017, 18. Like, yeah. I, is he's corrupt. <laughs> He's, you know, we're listening to, but he is an elected deputy MP under Family Lavalas. Yeah. So you can kind of like start splitting hairs and going, no, he's not Lavalas or he's not Family Lavalas. This other MP isn't, this other person isn't. But then what's left on the, as, in terms of formal political structure, in my opinion, there is nothing legitimate left after that. Yeah. They're just the pro democracy, post sovereignty movement that's known as Lavalas, which should be very carefully understood to be like not congruent with uh, family Lavalas. And just to like further reinforce the point, because I'm talking to this, this specific group of people now, um, another deputy MP, seemingly good buds with Jose Emilia is Quintan Belizeau. Quintan Belizeau was a suspect and to a degree still is in the murder of the journalist uh, Vladimir Lugano. True. Vladimir Lugano was actually looking into the incidents in Grand Ravine, the, the first uh, original sin of, of Cherizier. Yeah. And it was just, he disappeared. He was clearly, clearly murdered. I don't think we ever found the remains. No. It was a big deal at the time. It was before journalists started disappearing, you know, seemingly every week. Yeah. And um, it just becomes like background noise. Um, the the judge involved wanted to interview Quentin Belizeur. And Quentin Belizeau first used, uh, like, essentially political maneuvering to avoid the um, the being interviewed for, uh, as a suspect in this murder. At first, he said, "As an MP, I've got a uh, diplomatic community, but but I'm not going to use that diplomatic community. I wouldn't do that because obviously I'm not guilty. <laughs> but we happened to be about to take a break. I think it was for Christmas or around the Christmas season. So because of that, you're going to have to make another formal request to whoever is leading." Parliament, and once you make that request, then I'll happily come. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, it just happens that I'm on an official diplomatic meeting to Canada, so I'm not going to be around for a little while. <laughs> there is no record of this diplomatic visit to Canada. I don't know who he'd be meeting, but he claimed yeah, like... he, he was gone, it wasn't available, but don't worry, I'll get back to it, and I'm happy to meet with you um, investigating judge when I get back. Oh, it just turns out your mandate has run out, and now you can't interview me anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How convenient. Yeah, and then these deputy MPs, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but it should be understood yeah. there was a vast divide between these elected MPs mm -hmm. and the um, the executive of the party, who they're not elected, but you know, yeah. theoretically elected by party membership, but I haven't seen any evidence that there's been a, any recent election to justify the leadership of these four or five people who run the party. They're, they're each other's throats all the time. They weren't agreeing on anything. They were disagreeing over strategy. They were calling each other out over who's better representing the legacy of Aristide, who really represents uh, Lavalas movement, and so on and so forth. The short, the short answer is none of them did. Yeah. But Quintan <laughs> Belizeau, essentially, and Raju uh, Millian, the small group of uh, six MPs, were aggressively pushing to pass a motion to try mm -hmm. to get Jonah Moy's, um what's the word I'm looking for? His mandate, or I uh, know where they tried to they tried to do it to Trump, what three times? Oh, now? Uh, impeach! Them get, get them removed from power. Impeach. Thank you. Yeah, and it wasn't that the other parties weren't sympathetic with why he can't remove from power, but the PHCK had a majority. 
it didn't matter what what was presented it was going to be outvoted oh but they put in so much political capital and so much time (laughs) into trying to pass this motion to get him impeached where eventually the other parties kind of gave up and said fine you can have your little motion of course it was like it didn't didn't work because i had a majority yeah and in in the kind of frustration i suppose would be the nice way i could put it they tried to shut down parliament more than once mm. so meaning like one of them i'm not i don't want to say names like i remember exactly who it was literally sat in the chair of the uh the head of parliament they there's video of them like throwing chairs and desks around trying to <laughs> okay. um parliament for meeting yeah and on the second or third time this happens keeping in mind this is in front of a in front of a throng of journalists they think yeah. that they're this political theater is actually helping somebody. Yeah. We're going to fight tooth and nail and throw chairs and desks in order to pass a motion that is absolutely meaningless and will get yeah. us home, practically. Like, well, a lot of waste of uh, It leads to Clayton Billy's out getting so frustrated that he admits on camera and he says that he likes to chop people up with machetes and rob banks and fundamentally admits to committing heinous crimes and, and being a gang member. See? Um, at the time, it was understandable that anyone watching this um, episode would have tuned out because it started with La Saline Massacre, the so-called La Saline Massacre, which again maybe is better understood as a mass shooting in a long episode of, of mm-hmm. gang fights. So fundamental to that is Sammy Lavalas accusing PHTK of organizing a massacre. So what was the response? Joseph Lambert accuse them of being tied to gangs too. No. <laughs> um mostly Quentin Belly that I don't say he's tied to the Grand Ravine gang. If anybody watching from the outside would immediately go, I don't care what Joseph Lambert has to say. Yeah. And um I would totally understand that. I probably read at the same time and thought who cares what who Joseph Lambert is accusing of? He's like super corrupt and who cares? But it also doesn't mean what he's saying isn't true. And what was proven or not proven is a strong word but seems to be the case later is yes very much um Quentin Billy does seems to be tied to this gang yeah and um that he likely had a part uh, in, in the assassination of Vladimir Lagano he avoided having to give any testimony and so on and so forth and um yeah sorry well, he avoided giving well, out testimonies Just want to be he, clear. he tried he was avoiding having to give any formal testimony to the judge oh okay. the judge had a mandate of only a year um so uh he basically just ran out the clock yeah okay and never had to go so accused we have a family level last mp accused of that um admitting he's committed heinous crimes on camera um and uh yeah and th- this is Roger Millier's buddy this is the quality of candidate we have for Lavalas around 2018 uh, 19 now of course there's no parliament anymore but um yeah and they were also working along, alongside uh, Antonio Shekami, who uh, there's many inside family uh, Lavalas and Lavalas that are critical of him too. Um, so just to say, there's a very sharp contrast between family Lavalas 2004 to about 2009 versus what it eventually became, which is a shadow of itself later. And the people who don't recognize that are doing a disservice and potentially spreading misinformation or disinformation yeah. on behalf of these human rights groups who are seemingly coordinating with some of these corrupt MPs. The uh, family lives has become just another political party. No, that's true. We'll see, man. I'll see what it's all. These things are always interesting. Like, like 
like I said, you have knowledge of a lot of things that happened in those reports in the past. So it's always interesting to see because well, a lot of things, these things shaped up what's um, the narrative to running what's going on here and actually just the, pol the political landscape um, right now. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I'll let you go soon. I just want to, there's one thing I want to touch up on. Um, give me one sec here. It was from the New Yorker. And it was a quote, and I just want to know your opinion on it. And I'll get the quote here. Sorry. I have to change the screen I'm sharing it on because I ran out of my free article on New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> so give me one second. All right. So Haitian presidents are forbidden to serve consecutive terms. So, guys, if you don't know, um, in Haiti, you can serve max a five-year term. So you get elected. It's five years. Once you do that, serve that five years, it's out. Um, this was, it wasn't always that way. I have to go back and do my research, but it was changed. Um, oh my God. I believe if it was not after the first coup d'etat, then the second coup d'etat on, um, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, but I believe it was after the second one where some of the terms, um, and these rulings for serving, uh, your candidacy, uh, changed slightly. So I'll get into this and Haitian presidents are forbidden to serve consecutive terms, but Moïse, a skinny, serious man revealed that he and Matili had agreed to a 20-year plan in which they would alternate terms in office. Haiti needed that kind of stability, he said. So I just wanted to know, like, for do you think that would have worked? Because obviously I know their plan is if the P... So they're trying to alternate. So if I'm assuming if um, Matili, being a president of the... At the time, the, the leader of the party, party still wanted to maintain some type of power and influence... Um, but now in terms of stability, so the plan, like I said, again, says they were going to alternate five-year terms. So assuming it went through, it'd be Jovenel Moïse, Martelly, back Jovenel Moïse, and then finish, I guess, with uh, Martelly. Now, do you think that would have worked, in your opinion, in terms of pushing policies? Because the only reason I say that, what I always argue, I mean, just me person, personally, I find the the in terms of like the terms and the... I don't I don't I if it were my system, I believe more in a system where um, then again, this is with assuming the world's perfect. There's no corruption because I know certain countries would find a way to reelect the same person. But assuming that was not possible, I always believe that a president or a leader should be able to stay as long as he keeps getting voted by the population. So as long if the population keeps voting for him and he was a majority. I don't think they should have like a limit. So even in the States, the eight year thing, I, I think it's better, but I don't think you should be um, limited. I just think if the population doesn't want you anymore, then you're, you're out and whoever up's next. So back to this here in terms of stability, because um, reason I'm bringing it up in the past, I've criticized the, the system because um, of the, uh, the, the Haitian system, the five year term, because I don't think you can implement if you have um a plan in place i don't think you can implement all those things within five years i think you can play some i don't think if you show me your whole list i don't think all those can be done within five years so i was always a fan of somebody like being there for at least like 10 years or more and implement those plans that you can judge them now you have something here where um they're planning to alternate so i want to ask you and do you think it would have worked and if not um if so how because the only thing I'd argue um, against it is for it. The only thing I'd argue for, sorry, is that assuming that Jovenel Moïse and, and Martelly shared the same vision and future for Haiti, um, 
I can see the argument for stability if they were going to alternate. However, I'm not a fan of the PHT. I'm not a fan of the PHTK party itself. But the, the argument for stability was intriguing to me. So what do you what do you think on that? I know it's fully loaded. I went off on a... <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a, my opinion on electoral politics uh, generally. Like, I, yeah. you know, <clears throat> I don't feel it's my place to kind of comment on how Haitians govern themselves, but certainly all the problems you're pointing out are... Yeah, are but you can still observe it. Like, you can observe the system from a side, because that's like us criticizing the American system or the French system. They're all, they're all in a sense, they all have their issues. I don't... Like, like I get here into in Canada, it. we had like, you know, junk cut sand power for over a decade, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it could have worked, I suppose. I was just like, two thoughts. One is like, for that... Uh, Jonah Moise had to remain essentially a patsy for the PHDK. True. And it yeah. turns out he, at a certain point, like I'm, I subscribe to the narrative that at a certain point he realized that they were just going to roll over him at a certain point. And he yeah. was, was just a puppet. Yeah. Um, that's why he has some support in the countryside. You'll see it even on social media. There's some people who really believe in Jonah Moise because at a certain point he did kind of shift gears and try to whether it was to help Haitian, Haitians or just to make sure yeah. his legacy was intact to a degree. I don't know. Probably yeah, he was there. definitely, like, he got a lot popular, don't turn to you, because he got a lot of popular sentiment because he was also during his discourses. I don't know when that, it didn't start, when he got elected, he didn't, he didn't start doing that, but eventually there was some, at some point where he got fed up with the oligarchs or whoever is actually in power because in a lot of his discourses around the country, he started subliminally talking about them but without mentioning their name and that became a trend in a lot of his oh, yeah. discourses I mean, he was like keeping a list apparently of like uh, people who were running dr drug running operations yeah so, uh yeah whether he became mad at the people or just a man scared and desperate <laughs> realizing he's like increasing <laughs> i don't know um but fundamentally i guess i would say fundamentally it wouldn't matter because the you know it's the united states that has to remain the hegemon the that's continued to rule Haiti. Who does it for them? Doesn't really matter to them. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, you know, in some like alternative universe, would Haitians eventually like um, revolted against a PHTK, perhaps democratically elected government? I mean, they were never elected democratically. There was the first election brought Martelli to power was fully rigged. The second election fully rigged, so the PHTK has never legitimately come to power in the first place. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, that's that's all I would say is wh whoever was going to be in power, they didn't have approval of the United States. Their their tenure would be short because they would have been taken out. Yeah, which is exactly what happened to Joe Moise. He showed he wasn't uh, going to play ball anymore, so he was he was assassinated. Eventually taken off. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, did you want to get into the Yolen Guild, the screenshots you sent me, or should we do that another time? I can give you like a few minutes. I got to go. Okay. No, then we can do this another time then. Um, I, I don't mind giving the short of it, like, yeah, uh, sure. as a separate clip because, um, Mackie Yolen Gil and, uh, FJKL, I talked about a bit of their history elsewhere, but they're often regarded as a human rights group that is like somehow separate from RNDDH. So mm -hmm. the key points, a couple I brought up earlier, is as founded by Marie-Olingil and Samuel Madestin, 
Medestin is a lawyer by trade who attempted to run for the head of Mopad and failed. Um, when Jovenel Moïse was first assassinated, General Boulos, an oligarch, vicious, savage, you know, uh, anti-democratic uh, figure in in Haiti, um, he represented him. So there's definitely it's definitely worth questioning his legitimacy. Maggie Olengil carries all the baggage from the RNDDH into FJKL because she was like one of their main operatives, uh, investigators. Okay. When, uh, when the RNDDH was assisting the Letalti regime to, uh, to consolidate power, oppress uh, family Lavalas, uh, throw around false allegations, have people thrown in jail, so on and so forth, she interrogated people, uh, okay. Haitians. And this is more on the record. Like, Maggio Joseph has said straight out that she was involved in these interrogations. There are multiple witnesses, uh, victims, and people who were. Uh, illegally detained, uh, who uh, say that she was there and she was there to kind of be the good cop to offer deals in terms uh, for false testimony. Um, she left RNDDH in 2017. This is covered in in another uh, vision, mm-hmm. but she left because she complained that uh, that Espérance was taking Petro Caribe money, which was true. He took roughly 1.5 million cords. The oh, Petro Caribe money. Yeah. It was in that brief period between the two PHCK governments. Um, so it technically wasn't from them, but it was Petro Caribe money. He was also not putting money into insurance. He was taking donations from oligarchs, and she had enough of that. To say that this shows she has any ethics, though, is stretching it. Yeah. <laughs> she was willing to do all those things under to, yeah. to crush democracy and Haitian sovereignty under the RDDH. She just had a problem with like how like how Pierre Espinosa was financing the are in DDH. So that's where she draws the line. But I, I would say that doesn't make her <laughs> a more credible uh, person. Yeah. Um, unlike RNDDH, it's hard to track who's funding her organization. It's a virtual guarantee. They're based in a Western country, probably the United States. But they've officially partnered with the United States and have been congratulated by the Strommeyer, the ex-Charles uh, d'Affaire uh, for Haiti. So they're enmeshed in the in the uh, in the American government, like they got their funding from there, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and I'm I'm certain they they produced the first report on La Saline, which uh, is full of in- inaccuracies and like and uh, more recently, they condemned. I, I said earlier in the interview, like they condemned uh, Medestin, who is like a commissioner who is successfully keeping gangs at bay by essentially using Boacare type tactics, which is like, we can't depend on the justice system. We can't depend on, on the, uh, the pan ashes institution, not necessarily police officers, but the institution. So we have to go in and maintain justice ourselves. So he is like admitted to, to executing suspected gang members mm-hmm. and so on. Um, he, he walks around with a gun and a bulletproof vest. Um, but uh, my personal view is like to judge people in the situations that you know Medestain and other leaders find themselves in for these kinds of things is to impose a Western view on another country where the conditions are just different. You can't rely on any kind of law enforcement to come protect you or to stop gangs. So you've got to protect yourself. That's where Wakale come from, and that's where yeah. where Samuel Medestain is. Uh, is Samuel? No. Muscadine, excuse me. Muscadine, yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah, Muscadine. Motivations come from. 
and he's loved by his people. You know, yeah. any reporter that goes there finds like a uh, you know hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, supporters. And what does Maggie Lengil and the uh, FJKL do? They condemn him and tell him to stop doing what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> and who does the United States? She spoke at the recent Security Council meeting. She was invited, I think, on behalf of the United States. It wasn't the United States, it was the UN. But point being, yeah. they choose her to represent Haiti, which should already make her and her organization much more suspect. So yeah. while I'm not boosting CARD, a third human rights organization, I can't make a case for any corruption there or point to reports where like, they're, they are uh, wildly inaccurate. Yeah. Um, that said, they're a small organization, only only uh, publish uh, on certain topics. But uh, Maggie O'Langeo had no credibility. FJKL doesn't either. They're a U.S.-backed uh, front. Yeah, and okay. people should be careful looking for those names along with yeah. uh, a whole host of others. You can read my article on the NED or my last one where I kind of identify a lot of these uh, a lot of these organizations by name. Yeah. Yeah, no, and honestly, uh, part of it because of you too. Now, every time I see like if there's a um, political name I see brought up or some person, I always try and see if there's any background info, like the quick Google search, see their involvements in the past, because oftentimes you'll find something, some type of involvement in the past in politics um, when it's related uh, to Haiti. Um, so I thank you, Travis. Honestly, thanks for your time. I think we went over than what we thought we would uh, <clears throat> go over. But honestly, thank you for your time. Um, I think this was an important discussion, especially we're talking about um, narrative, um, the, the report, the, slide, the microscope of a report that you're working on and politics related to Haiti. Um, so thank you for this. Uh, definitely want to have you another time. And for those um, still watching, you can find Travis. I'll share the link in the comments on the on the podcast and on YouTube, just so everyone can see the Canada Haiti. So it's Canada-Haiti.ca, but if you don't don't see it, it's right here. Canada Haiti Information Project, yeah. Yeah. I just want to point it. Perfect. Right here. Canada Haiti Information Project. Everything you need, as well as other links to other related um organizations and news outlets that are doing the same thing as well so thank you travis um thanks for joining and uh talk to you soon obviously it was a pleasure thanks for having me thank you